0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, presentation of National Review. You can find us on Twitter at Political underscore Beats. Jump in the conversation. Subscribe to our feed as well. New episodes most Mondays on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Plus, head right over to NationalReview.com, and you can click on Podcast to find us and all the other fine National Review podcasts and back episodes as well. Listen, enjoy, share. Please leave reviews as well. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, is Jeff Blair.
1: Jeff! Uh, it's great to be here. I'm actually doing fantastic. i got to say, uh, I've been playing piano all morning, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to shifting over to drums. Um, uh, I, I've I, I got to say, later on tonight, we're going to be doing the tuba overdubs. That That is going to be a problem, seeing as I haven't played it in about 10 years.
0: But you know what? It's like riding a bike, is what I hear. It, playing the tuba? I, I, you
2: right.
1: never forget,
0: right? That's right. You do it once, and you pick it right back up again. Uh, find Jeff on Twitter, at EsotericCD. And our guest for this edition of Political Beats is also standing by. He's the drama critic for The Wall Street Journal, author of the plays Satchmo at the Waldorf and Billy and Me, and the biography The Skeptic, A Life of H.L. Mencken. He's on Twitter at Terry Teachout, and perhaps you understand his real name is also Terry Teachout, standing by. Terry, thank you so much for joining us here on Political Beats. I'm most pleased to be with you. So we are here to discuss a a band that you have presented as one you are passionate about, one you love. Before we get to that band, we always want to dig a little deeper into our guests and find out how you uh, ended up in your current employment. Terry, what's your story?
3: Well, I started out as a musician. Uh, I played, uh, I guess I played every kind of music. Started on violin, taught myself bass, studied piano, uh, played country music, played in a power trio. Moved to Kansas City, went to college, started playing jazz there, and then came to my senses and realized that I was, in fact, a better writer than I was a musician, and ended up in New York, uh, where I have been writing about all of the arts pretty much for the last uh, thirty or forty years. Uh, I've been a contributor to National Review for uh, since the Pleistocene era, roughly. And uh, I am, as you mentioned, the drama critic of the Wall Street Journal. I am a, I think of myself as a recovering musician.
0: And you lend that air of credibility to the show, a former musician to weigh in on what you've identified as the band you wish to discuss today. We go uh, through their career, a band that uh, is considered one of the most American bands, uh, perhaps of all time, at least the music they created, despite the fact they are four Canadians. Along with a guy from uh, Arkansas if I'm if I'm correct.
3: You are quite correct four Canadians and a ringer.
0: And it is quite simply the band the band. And we turn it to Terry and give him the floor once again to, to tell us how did you get into this band, the band? Why do you like them so much and why should uh, ordinary everyday Americans care about the band, Terry?
3: Well, let me turn back the clock a long way to uh, 1968. I grew up in a small town in southeast Missouri um, where we had one radio station that played Top 40. And I listened to that, to my father's records, which were mostly Frank Sinatra and Stan Kenton, and uh, to whatever happened to pop up on the television, and then to classical music when I started to study violin. I had very little consciousness of rock music when i was a boy i was born in 1956 then in 68 the year i turned 12 uh, i started taking a class in what they back then called social studies lord knows what they call it now (laughs) with a a, a rather hip teacher bob nelson who uh, took a shine to me decided that my musical tastes were not sufficiently advanced and loaned me two albums I'd never heard of. One was Abbey Road, and the other was John Wesley Harding. Those were, between them, quite an ear-opener, and I spent the next six years catching up with the music of my own time and my own generation. I really was listening to everything just indiscriminately back then. The, the albums that stand out in my mind are all over the map. Get your ya-ya's out, Crosby, Seals & Nash, Live at Leeds, Electric Ladyland, Working Man's Dead, pretty much whatever was going Um, it was as though all of the music of the late 60s and early 70s was coming at me in a single cloud of confusion and excitement. So I was trying to find my way through the music, find out what was new. There was really nobody to talk to in Southeast Missouri who knew much about it. Hmm. There weren't even any good record stores. I had to order records from Chicago. So I bought a paperback called the Rolling Stone Record Guide, which was a collection of reviews the original reviews of the Mm -hmm. albums of this period for the pages of rolling stone
1: this book has come up several times during political beats among various guests terry i just i
3: just bet it has between that and the warner brothers lost leader records uh my generation really found out about what music was going on out there i read that book so hard that the pages fell out (laughs) and i bought a a considerable chunk of the records therein that I found interesting. And I was quite struck when I read the review of of what is called the Brown album, the album whose formal title is just the band. Um, It was written by Ralph Gleason, who by that time I knew was better known as a jazz critic. And it didn't sound like a rock and roll review, and it didn't sound entirely like a rock and roll record from what I read about it. It sounded like a fusion of, of the rock that I knew, country rock and country music, with the blues and also with rockabilly, which was a music that, again, I knew nothing about really then. To me, in 1968, 69, Elvis Presley was a, a, the guy who made those awful movies. Um, so I was curious and I ordered uh, music from Big Pink, the band's first album, and the band. And I was floored. Absolutely floored. I won't say that I'd heard absolutely nothing like this because they were a bit like Creedence Clearwater Revival uh, mm-hmm. uh, at that time. That, that's how they struck a very young, young person. And I'd heard a Working Man's Dead and, they were, and The Birds and they were roughly from that terrain. But there was something much more distinctive about them, such, something, we didn't use that term back then, but something much more rootsy. Um, and I was much taken with them. But I I have to tell you that when I was a teenager, um, this was just one of the musics that I was listening to. And I loved it, but I'm not sure that it stood out at that time so much from the cloud of confusion of all these extraordinary musics I was hearing. I was also listening to jazz, and when I went off to college in Kansas City in 1975, I met my first jazz musicians and started playing playing jazz for the first time. I was playing bass. Uh, And I became completely absorbed with jazz as a music. I also discovered, at this time, Steely Dan, uh, which is, of all the the rock music of my youth, the, the group that was most profoundly influenced by jazz. And I didn't spend much time for the next few years either keeping up with the rock that was current in the mid to late 70s and the early 80s or listening to the albums that I bought when I was in high school. It was a few years before I returned to them. And when I did so, I found that most of the records I had liked when I was a boy now struck me as, as immature, uh, to use a phrase that Louis Armstrong once used. They didn't have enough ingredients to them, uh, not in their lyric concerns and not in the music itself. Uh, So I I realized that I was, shall we say, too old for Jefferson Airplane. (laughs) But when I listened to Big Pink and the band again, uh, I realized that they were very much a music that, if anything, made even more sense to me at this point in my life, because it was an adult music, a music about the kind of lives that adults lead. In that respect, it was much more like country music, which is a music about people who have jobs and get divorces and and have difficulties in life. Um, And I was also better equipped to understand the synthesis of musics uh, that the band put together in these albums, Uh, the wide range of it, the richness of it, the the authenticity of it, but it was also not, not, to use the modern word, a curator's music. It was a music played by people who loved all these different kinds of musics and understood them and wanted to make something personal out of them. And I found that, if anything, my appreciation for these records had increased uh, in in the years that I'd taken off from rock. Since then, uh, I have continued to listen to all kinds of music, um, and I still love Steely Dan as much as I did then, and there are still... The Beatles as well, and there are still a handful of albums that I listened to in high school that, that I find I can still listen to with pleasure. But topping the list, even now, uh, alongside Steely Dan, are the albums of the band. They seem to me to be the, the greatest achievement uh, of rock, uh, the one that has lasted the longest, the one that has the most to say to people who have moved into later parts of life. The one that the ones that I think will last the longest, I really think so. Now that, in a sense, we're in a post-rock period now, mm-hmm. uh, the popular music has moved on, but these albums are, in the truest sense of the word, classics. And this group, uh, for me, is as good as it gets.
1: I love the fact that Terry uses uh, Jefferson Airplane as a punching bag, uh, because. (laughs) Well, no, I love it because I have used them myself several times again throughout past episodes of this show as a as a quintessential punching bag. Usually, well, my
3: my my other punching bag is Crosby, Stills, and Nash, whom I
1: adored. Another worthy punching. Yes.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I adored them when I was in junior high school, and now they sound to me like baby food.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh god that's such a great comparison. You're right. Smooth, soft mush that just slides gently down the palate without leaving much of a residue afterwards. Right. Uh, and
3: and we're not even getting to the the, the silliness, the the quality of the lyrics, you know. Uh, when when I when I when I listen to those albums we're peaking about the, the imminence of revolution. I don't know whether to laugh or cry. I really
1: <laughs> right, Exactly. I, I think I, I compared, you know, like listening to, um, you know, Jefferson Airplane saying, you know, we can be together, you know, up against the wall MFers to like, you know, yes. like, like serious political music. I think I compared it to Creed's Clearwater Revival talking about Don't Look Now, It Ain't You mm-hmm. or Me. Some of you know, the more right. the serious and, and profoundly sort of true working class politics of those songs. I was just, there's no comparison here. This is you know these are yeah when, when, when I was when I, politics versus John to who lived it right
3: when I was in high school it was not hip to listen to Creedence Clearwater Revival right uh, absolutely not you listened to it on the slide <laughs> and a decade a decade later I realized this was also one of the things that would last in the same way that uh, to me the, the great hard rock album that has lasted is Live at Leeds
1: um, I couldn't agree more with you there. Yeah
3: but these these are not these are albums that partake of of a musical language that has much deeper roots in 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 musical tradition and whose lyrics are not preoccupied with the foolishness of the moment for the most right. part they're about
1: universal things. Yeah, I, I, for myself, I'll say that one of the one of the there are so many wonderful things about having a, a strong fatherly influence in your life, uh, and uh, one of those for me, and, and we've discussed this so many times during various episodes of the show, was the influence that my father had on me as a child, as a very young child. You know, we had for me, I you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Maryland, Washington D.C. My dad's from upstate New York, tellingly, um, and he.
2: Uh, what what generation was uh, he? He
1: was born in 1943, so okay, you know he's he's a little older than you. I'd say he's in the 70s now. Um, and uh, he, uh, you know, would you it introduced me to so many different things. We listen to Top 40 radio, so like I knew all like the hits that were happening. And I was born in 1980, so I would listen to like the young, the, the okay. mid 80s and 90s stuff. But then my dad always used to tape like music videos off of the TV, and I'd listen to that. <laughs> But then the other thing that he was really intent on exposing me to was his vinyl collection. And in particular, there were uh, some artists that he really wanted me to know, uh, you know, not all of them took with me. He he was a big fan of like Ian and Sylvia and the Clancy Brothers. He was an old folky from the '60s, right? Uh-huh. Uh, but the the, mus- the musical equivalent of a red diaper. Eh, eh, well,
2: yeah. that's <laughs> the funny thing,
1: right? Because you know he's he's sort of a moderate conservative guy now, but yeah, he is the guy I joke about this that sat me down in 1988 to explain to me why he was voting for Jesse Jackson in the in the Maryland primary because Michael Dukakis was too conservative. Yeah, so like. We, <laughs> Yeah, we're definitely talking about a guy who grew up in that, that sort of 60s milieu, right? But uh, the thing that he really did that I loved that I that you know so many of the things that he exposed me to as a child kind of stuck with me. Uh, but very few um, more so than Bob Dylan and the band, and of course those went hand in hand for me. You know what? Yes. He would always. I remember the first time he played like a Rolling Stone for me. I must have been five years old. And I was like, I, I can't stand this guy's voice. He doesn't sound like he's in tune. Ba, ba, ba. Dad put on Madonna. Uh, but I eventually got it. And then he explained to me the band. And he explained to me like this sort of magical, like, you know, they came out of nowhere as if appearing from the mists like noble savages. <laughs> You know, like you know, like you know, like Tarzan, the ape man. Like, how do they, you know, how 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 do they come from nowhere? And then, we, of course, you know, he we explained them, well. They didn't come from nowhere. They were Dylan's backing band. So we played, you know, music from Big Pink, and I learned to love that album. We had it on vinyl, um, and then he put on a video for me, he says, Jeff, I want you to hear this. And it was a performance uh, from the last waltz of Levon Helm singing The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. And I've still never forgotten. It was an old grainy VHS tape, and I was just – Oh, i've never I've never forgotten uh watching that for the first time and being blown away by it and then even as a young child understanding that that it was stirring these very weird emotions in me you know we're all northerners and unionists and this is making me sympathize with people who I always knew were like the bad guys and mm-hmm. like the great sort of definitional struggle for American identity and I don't want to stick too much on this now because we'll talk about it when we get to the brown album but I was just I was it was a magical moment I just realized that these people Conjure a place in time and in space that sits outside of whatever the everyday reality of our, uh, you know, American experience is now, and sort of gestures toward this, towards this mythologized version, and it creates sort of. a place that we can all look back on that is our shared American history, and the irony, of course, of that is that, as you know, as Scott said right at the jump, this is a band that was four fifths Canadian, you know. Well, and, you know, to be fair to Canadians, they're as Canadian as they can be under the circumstances. They are, after all, America's hat. So, um, <laughs> the band is a group that I, I just ended up loving those first two albums in particular, um, and then, of course, I got into all their stuff. And, of course, you know, because I'm such a an obsessive compulsive music. Lover. I've ended up collecting everything they've ever done. And they have a history that I think is, is – I, I, we talked about this on our show notes. I think their prehistory prior to music from Big Pink is as interesting in some ways as most other artists or bands' normal history actually is. Because I think so too.
2: I before so they too.
1: even made it big, they had already gone all the way around the world in terms of musical experience. And, and Scott, I guess that's the place I'd like to start with this. Yeah,
0: I I, I want to hand it over to you. You have this passion for the early stuff and, and Terry mentioned he does too. My my the the, the uh musical history which was uh, which was released that kind of compiles a whole lot of this early stuff as as well as into their the main part of their career gives you a look at what was happening at these uh, from these early days uh serving as members of Ronnie Hawkins backing band in in Toronto uh moving on being discovered by Bob Dylan joining him or most of them joining him as he toured in 1966 um and and, and my big takeaway look uh, you can mention some songs uh, uh from the early days uh, like honky tonk and, and bacon fat i mean when you talk about a an american band to have the, these early songs called honky tonk and bacon fat kind of makes sense when you think about it but this idea almost of um uh, this American, you know, this band that exemplifies America, kind of serving their first years in an apprenticeship of sorts, of sorts under these great, great artists, and what they learn from Hawkins and what they learn from Dylan, and and how they 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 weave that into what they already had, sort of together, is is interesting to see unfold uh, on these early songs and into uh, in the Big Pink album. Uh, but 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 y- you know what they were able to take and, and how they developed their 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 sound and how they figured out exactly what they were capable of through these early songs is something to behold.
3: So you know, I think that a, a musician's perspective on this, and I'm not now talking about a technical perspective, is that these guys were the the musical equivalent of working stiffs. Mm-hmm. They put in their time. I, you know, I I am a guy who's played covers in hotels and I know what that feels like and they did that too. They right. went out, they played the gigs, they played bad gigs, they played every kind of music, they played what the audience wanted. the pop music of their time sounded like exactly as Dylan himself had done, albeit in a more studied way. Uh, And it gave them uh, a language to work with so that when they did meet Dylan, who had moved on to try to say something more personal and and individual uh, that arose from this kind of language, they were ready for him. They were, in fact, exactly what he needed just as he was exactly
1: what they needed. I mean, I think that there's something unique about the fact about their composition, you know, just, just you know, the, the basics, so everybody knows. If you don't know already, the band is a five-member band. It's Robbie Robertson on guitars, and he would eventually take over a lot of the lead songwriting duties. Mm-hmm. Um, it, much to the, uh, you know, there there would be a lot of bad blood between him and the rest of the band uh, at near the end of their career. Uh, but then there's Richard Manuel, uh, nominally on piano, but of course all these guys were multi-instrumentalists. Multi-instrument, they could play everything. Manuel also sang like an absolute angel. Is one of mm-hmm. the maybe a lot of people would say is the defining s- vocal sound of the band, unless we're talking about LaVon Helm, who was the drummer of the band. And he was also, he's the voice you hear on songs like The Weight. Then you have Rick Danko on bass, who was, again, another featured lead vocalist on so many of their great songs. Those three voices, LaVon, Richard, and Rick, are the really the, the, the only
3: three. And you have just put your finger on something that sets this group apart really from almost any of their, their contemporaries. And that is that they do not have a lead vocalist. Right, no. they have three they, lead vocals. They present three different singers who are featured at different times and who on any given song usually at some point sing an ensemble as well. Absolutely. That, that's another big part of what set the band apart.
1: And the, the last member who, who really actually sometimes sort of travels underneath, you know, in the in the shadows and doesn't get as much credit as he deserves is Garth Hudson, yes. who was their, their organist and their keyboardist. He played basically everything that wasn't piano, uh, that was a keyboard instrument, would be Garth Hudson. And, and he's the guy who's really, you know, the, the, the defining genius behind songs like Chest Fever and other things. And he never sang. He's famously he's the only one you'll never hear a vocal from on any band album. Even Robbie Robertson's squawky voice gets heard at least once or twice Um, these guys all joined they came together kind of piecemeal as they were you know you know playing for backing for Ronnie Hawkins. They recorded at least one really classic single, which is Hawkins' cover of Who Do You Love? This, of course, is, a, is a, an old Bo Diddley song. Uh, famous as as they get. Everybody knows it. Uh, you don't even need to explain it to you, but the Hawk the Hawks version of it is, uh, for 1963, really out there. There's a really fiery Robert e. Robertson guitar solo that underpins that. And I gotta say, Ronnie Hawkins, you know, he had one kind of shtick, but it was a pretty good shtick, uh, which is that he could <laughs> scream like an absolute banshee <clears throat> maniac on his stuff and he sounded like he was out of his mind uh, which you know for a, a country as mild as Canada must have been absolutely incendiary because people weren't used to that maybe in like, you know, in the bayous of Louisiana or Arkansas they'd, they'd heard people who could do that but you know everybody's very white and very polite in Toronto so, the, right land of, the land of trimmed lawns
0: Exactly <laughs> The night black and a night blue and the round of an ice wagon through. I
2: bump was a hit. and somebody scream! You shoulda heard just what I seen. Now who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? I got a tombstone hand and a graveyard mind. I live long
0: enough, and I ain't scared of dying. Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love?
1: So that's why the Hawks actually did so well up in Canada, because they brought an authentic southern sound to a place that didn't really have much of it. At a certain point, the Levon and the Hawks struck out. That was their name after they left Ronnie. Uh, And they recorded a whole series of singles. I think they're actually pretty fun and pretty good stuff, but we don't really need to spend any time on them. The point at which they really bust into the pop. Were you going to say something? Did I did I hear no. you there? I, I, okay, because I would say the point at which they really burst into prominence uh, is, of course, with Bob Dylan. Uh, they joined him not only for a couple of songs singles uh, during the 1965-66 era on blonde on blonde and other uh, you know non-album tracks but of course they accompanied him on his infamous famous legendary 1966 uh, world tour uh, particularly in England uh, where they were booed riotously by uh, folk purists who were enraged that Bob had forsaken the gospel of protest music in, in favor of this this uh, you know sellout Callow teen pop music I still, find is, course, that,
0: I still find that Amazing to picture in my mind The crowd
2: yeah, I mean, Crowd remember, turning against Dylan For plugging
0: home. in I just I love that what mental picture
1: What you going say today? I was just
3: going to say what a miracle That we can act here Those performing and the audience units And Dylan's reacting I mean these are things I read about But you know, and now in my late middle age,
1: uh, I can... Yeah, I mean it. It is amazing that we actually they've actually released all of them now. If you're uh, yeah. you're willing to plunk down the uh, the coin, you can hear every single concert from that tour that was recorded. Um, and uh, Levon Helm famously stayed home. They got somebody else, uh, another drummer, to fill in because Levon played the first few gigs and was just tired of being booed. You know, his his Southern pride. Levon, of course, is the one Arkansas one Razorback. Uh, he's just like, I, you know what? I, I got better things to do with my life than have people, uh, you know, scream Judas at me. <laughs> i'm trying to drum on stage and he went to literally this is the thing part of the everything that's just sort of this legend of the band what did levon helm do he went to work on an oil rig in louisiana yes, yes. He, became <laughs> an, he became an oil man for crying out loud i mean that's as hard scrabble as it gets man that's like dangerous work <laughs> and then after this this fantastic tour where you know if you've heard the, these versions of, like, you know, not only like Rolling Stone, which is famous from the 66 Dylan tour, but also like their recasting of I Don't Believe You or uh, One Too Many Mornings, just like Tom Thumb's Blues. They were just ripping this music to shreds on a nightly basis. They came home and Dylan kind of engineered uh, an incident to crash out of the business. He had a quote motorcycle accident. Uh, he claimed it was life-threatening i think at this point everybody knows that it was really just an excuse that he used as a pretext to duck this massive tidal wave <laughs> of publicity that he felt was just covering him up um and they ended up holding up in a house in woodstock new york uh a, a really weird looking uh house with a bizarrely painted pink finish on the outside they called it big pink And uh, they ended up recording uh, a series of demos that Dylan would then release uh, to other artists, say, like, you want to record my new songs? Here they are. They're very weird songs about taking my potatoes down to be mashed and, you know, wheels that are on fire and, uh, uh, you know, Eskimos named Quinn. Uh, That was called the Basement Tapes. And that is really where the band first comes together. They call LeVon back you know from from his gig in louisiana say hey listen we're putting the band together it's going to be for real this time we're going to do our own thing and he's like all right and they come on back and then from the basement tapes to music from big pink is that moment where the band crystallizes it becomes something more than just this you know grits and chitlin circuit kind of a, a band with levon and the hawks and then it becomes the magical mystical fusion of folk americana that the first two albums of the band's actually were and you know before we move on to music from big pink i want to ask does anybody have any thoughts on the basement tapes and how how this this whole whirlwind came together Uh, because i think it's just one of the most remarkable musical transformations that i have ever seen you could say the pieces were all there but the fact that they got assembled in that way is uh something that has never happened before or since
2: well i
3: think that of course for me for my generation uh we remember the basement tapes when they were still a pirate, you know, when they were the great white whale and you really did have to get them under the counter and felt that you were hearing some kind of revelation when you first encountered them. Um, I think it must say, of course, it was having Helm back because he was really a crucial ingredient in that mix. He always would be. He, he was, he was the guy who worked on the rig. He was the, the anchor of authenticity. I think putting him back in the mix and then undoubtedly having them be in the songwriting workshop uh, when in, in the room where it happens, as I say, in Hamilton, uh, must have caused them to realize that they could take this musical language, this instrumental language that they have, had worked out uh, throughout their tenure as Sidemen, and fuse it with Dylan's new ideas about what the lyrics of a song are. song is about how it doesn't have to be a conventional narrative. It can have an essentially poetic quality. It can draw historical sources in a very direct kind of way, Uh, but it doesn't have to be the pop music that they had all grown up with. That must have hit them all as a kind of revelation. They must at some point have said to themselves, we can do this too. We can do this ourselves.
1: I think the other thing about the basement tapes, you know, they were eventually as, you know, Terry points out, they were for a long time, uh, you know, just circulated as bootlegs. And then they finally got an official release, a weird adulterated release uh in 1975. Um the thing that is remarkable about them, and I think you know, just, you know, we'll do with some show on, on Dylan in another day. Uh let's just talk about the band's material here. The key from, you know, from Levon and the Hawks to the basement tapes, to music from Big Pink is in those collaborations that uh, the band and Dylan collaborated on together. That 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 the members did. I think of uh, Tears of Rage, uh, which is a song that Richard Manuel wrote uh, the music for, which I think is the, some of the best music, pure music of the band's career. Yes. And then Dylan wrote these lyrics, and he, you know, I think I remember reading an interview with Manuel once, saying like, you know, I'd had this theme, and you know, and 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 Bob, you know, said to me like, hold on, you know, I, I've got something for that, and he came down, and and the song he wrote. It wasn't, again, it wasn't a, uh, a pop song. It wasn't a song about meaningless things, frivolous things. It, it, by the way, there was a lot of frivolity on the basement tapes. As I said, you know, there oh, those yes. songs. You know, like you know, odds and ends. Lost time is not found again. There's a lot of silliness on the basement tapes. And instead, what happened is that Bob Dylan came down with a song that begins, "You know, we carried you in our arms on Independence Day, and now you throw us all aside and send us on our way." And it's a song. uh, I don't know how he came up with this idea in 1967, of no, no less, of you know, a daughter just rebelling against her parents and you know you know brutally and and sort of thoughtlessly throwing them aside and going off to do her own thing without ever acknowledging the love and the pain and the anguish that they put into raising her and trying to be wonderful parents to her um, and this in 1967 uh, in, in the summer of love you know sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band hmm. um, you know all of the hippy dippy psychedelia stuff was so completely out of step That I know it must have had an effect not only on Manuel, not only on Danko, who wrote This Wheel's on Fire with Dylan, but certainly, certainly most of all on Robbie Robertson, who was just sitting there playing guitar in the background and observing To me, is 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 the meaning of the Basement Tapes is watching Dylan, uh, you know, take this 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 folk Americana, all these traditional numbers, put them together, and instead of putting them together into some sort of you know you know alchemical broth of silliness and frivolity like Mighty Quinn the Eskimo, which he let other people release, he put them together in songs like Tears of Rage and I Shall Be Released, and songs that really sing to people. And uh, Robertson said, "Okay, well, uh, that's what I got to do. I can do that. I can do that." And it's, as it turns out, Robertson could do that.
3: Yeah, don't 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 sell the Beatles short, by the way, because they had learned. Oh, the no
1: danger of, of that, Terry. Yeah, the
3: lesson of, the lesson of Dylan, just a few years earlier, he had taught them that there are other things to write songs about, and that was what turned the key for them as well. But I, it's when when you've been talking about the songs from the the Basement Tapes. It reminds me that I've always felt that in some ways Dylan is more like a short story writer of that period than he is a songwriter. Uh, he's interested in a much wider range of subject matter. And I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he read Flannery O'Connor. And I would be very surprised if Robbie Robertson had not read Flannery O'Connor, because that's, that's the, the country, not just the physical country but the spiritual, metaphysical country uh, in which these songs deal. I can tell
1: you, I know for a fact that Dylan did read Flannery O'Connor. He's referenced Flannery O'Connor a couple of times in interviews.
3: Yeah, It doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Uh, But again, there is somebody who wrote with a kind of, of strangeness of quality that sets her apart from anything else that was being done back then. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that she had very te- deep tap roots in in a particular place. It's funny that that's something Dylan himself didn't have. That his tap root was in music itself. Uh, he was somebody who he was somebody who learned about the world and its complexities. I think through the different kinds of music that that the world brought him but you don't feel that he is himself rooted in, in place and experience in the way that something like O'Connor was.
1: Um, yeah. I don't hear, that, I don't hear a lot too. of hibbing Minnesota and Dylan no. <laughs> He's really trying to, yeah. He, he sort of consciously worked his, worked that out of his system and became like, you know, uh, the man of constant sorrow, you know, talking about yeah. all, all these things.
3: But it's, it's really, it's, it's a tribute to his uniqueness that, that, uh, he doesn't require these roots. That he, He's a true imaginative artist, a self-created artist who created himself out of an amalgam of all the great kinds of American popular music, a, a far wider range than most people realized at the time. I remember when his, uh, his uh, satellite radio show, Theme Time Radio, came on, and we got a chance just to listen to him essentially rummaging through his record collection. Mm. And it was quite staggering. I know a lot of music, and he knew a lot of music that I didn't know and had never heard of. Uh, and it was a lot of different kinds of music. And all that, uh, and this is where we're headed for, made its way into the mix that became the band.
1: It became Big Pink. All right, Scott, do you have any thoughts on the basement tapes or do you want to take the first crack at music from Big Pink?
0: I'll uh, I'll I'll move us along and uh, and take the first crack at, at Big Pink, which uh, is just one of those albums that maintains... Through the years, and there's so much to love about this band, the band that came together in such an amalgam of musical styles. In the different corners of this album, you know, you can hear blues, you can hear jazz flourishes, you can hear, of course, folk and country, and a little soul and rockabilly, and all these things that 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 were sort of under the surface in those. Uh, songs from the past few years, before Big Pink, and the lyrics and what what was being written about here are uh, topics and, and issues that really connect people. Uh, I think that's why it resonates so powerfully. Whether it be family and and you know the the uh, the, uh, the inner sleeve portrait of the band with their with their families. Yes, there's a lot of talk about family and faith and and the and the and the rural life that. Uh, that 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 connected people back uh, long ago, and the songs here are quality. I told, I I was driving last night, I was driving around last night, listening to Big Pink and The Weight came on, and turning it up and feeling like you were in the room with these guys performing the song. That that's the way most of this album really feels. And and when The Weight hits the chorus and you hear the sparkling piano keys from, from Hudson into the into the chorus and you hear um, you know the, the harmonies uh on all the ends coming into the in, in the chorus it's just beautiful get
2: a cannonball now to take me down the line my bag is sinking low and I do believe it's time to get back to Miss Fanny, you know she's the only one
0: beautiful and,
3: music and it's not neat it's right. rough hewn yes it, it sounds like it could be a first take i mean you know that it's not but but it sounds like it could have just been tossed off i when i was a kid uh, i used to, to to play music with old guys in, in the back rooms and houses at night uh country music and bluegrass things like that you just sit around and and you throw together a performance of a song that you all knew or that some of you knew part of and and then suddenly you were flying. Uh, and that's, that's especially what the way it sounds like uh, musically. And then those lyrics, which are like a myth. Yeah. Uh, something that you cannot quite put your finger on.
1: And the thing is, Robbie Robertson has this sort of pretentious way of explaining. He says it's like a Luis Buñuel film about <laughs> the impossibility of sainthood, and you're like, okay, fine. I kind of get what he says about that, but you know what? It's better to just reinterpret it on a much more um, earthy level, as you know, as Terry says, it's like an American folk myth. All yeah. of these, these, these things. You know, you try to do a good deed for somebody, and then this comes up, and then this comes up, and then this comes up, and then before you know it, you've entangled yourself deep into the web of this place that you you didn't even you're not a part of you you pulled into it feeling half past dead right and and now all of a sudden you're stuck and you've got this weight you've got to carry and all these commitments you've made to people that you hadn't expected to but well you know you you, you're gonna discharge your duties anyways because that's what a man does and you know and that's and,
3: and in that first line the fourth word of the song you find out that you're in a place called Nazareth. Mm-hmm. Nazareth. And whatever he meant, whatever that means, whatever specific Nazareth he had in mind, there are, are obviously varying explanations of that. You can't hear a line like that without suddenly feeling that you're plugged into something much bigger, much deeper, much more profound than anything you would have been likely to hear on any other record that was released you know, in 1968, 1969. It,
1: it's a perfect way just i'm just as a technical observation as a songwriter as a lyric writer it is a perfect way of exploring the duality of yes obviously as of the biblical um reference of nazareth Mm. obviously jesus uh but also of the fact that all of these you know you you uh protestants and you know baptists and people who like you know moved out to the great american midwest and south ended up naming a lot of their small towns after these biblical places so right. you think of both things you think of both like you know the, the 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 big fact looming in the background which is the biblical reference and then you also are immediately taken to a place that could be in like you know, southeastern Tennessee, or south, you know, southwestern Kentucky, or or you know, at southeastern Missouri, for that matter. Uh, it, it could be in any of those places, in all of those places, and it's just, it's. it's I have to say, you know, Robertson, um, pretentious though he he often gets raked over the coals for being and, and and honestly, if I've watched the Last Waltz as much as you guys have, I think it's justified. Um, he was really really smart especially in these early days mm-hmm. at finding that walking that beautiful knife's edge of these dual references that, that meant so many different things that you could interpret them in so many different ways uh, right. and, and, to, w- frame, and to frame them
3: in to frame them in a completely colloquial way exactly knowledge. exactly hey mister can you tell me where a man might find a bed
1: uh, he, he just, just smiled and uh, shook my and, hand no, no, was only said. Oh, it's so I mean, beautiful,
0: and that's why yeah, you know you have is. you have to expect for a lot of the songs on Big Pink and into uh, the band certainly to kind of flip to the uh, to the to the lyric sheet or to the credits and see and see public domain, right? They they feel like they've <laughs> yeah. been around a long time. <laughs> they feel like they were written in the uh, early 1900s when this is the way that people talked to each other, and, and the songs were really just written as the way that people were discussing matters of the day. That's the way these things unfold, and of course, it's not public domain. It's you know a few uh, contributions co-written by Dylan, but, uh, but this is before Robinson, uh, really, Robertson really took over the, the writing, and so you've got some contributions from the band. Up and down uh, the song list um, I mean
1: it, it's the same it's the same thing as the, is the proud Mary paradox yeah, that we discussed yeah. in yes. our Cre- in our Creed's Clearwater Revival episode uh, where we you know it was like this is a song that was actually written by a guy from Northern California sitting in a ro- alone in a, in a blank apartment staring at the staring wall, the wall. Yeah. and it sounds like it's been sung by people traveling up and down the Mississippi for a hundred years uh, that's that's. What you get out of a song like "The Weight," that's what comes out of songs like "Tears of Rage," even, and then that in particular is what comes out of a song that I, you know, there's so many great songs on music from Big Pink. You know, these are the things you, you can bog down because you could discuss every single one. But for me, I will, oh, yeah. I will say this: that if there's one particular number that I want to focus on because I think it's hugely underrated, is uh, uh, one that was a favorite of my father's as well. It was on all of his tapes, so we played it in the car. Uh, we can talk. You know, uh, we can yes. talk about it now. Uh, again, these communal harmonies, all three voices coming in. You know, what are the lyrics? They sound like they're almost public domain. We can talk about it now. It's that same old riddle, only starting from the middle. I'd fix it, but I don't know how. We could try to reason, but you might think that it's treason. And then you have all three voices singing. You know, Terry talked about those ragged communal harmonies that sound so unrehearsed, but they had to have been rehearsed, but mm-hmm. they sound so spontaneous. One voice for all, echoing across the hall. And you hear every other guy go, echoing, echoing, echoing across the hall. Don't give up on Father Clock. We can talk about it now, and I have never understood why this isn't singled as one of the truly finest songs the band has ever done. Because if you know, we try to explain to people, you know, try to explain to an alien who's who's never heard this stuff, isn't grounded in, you know, the American background, the mythos of Dylan and the band hasn't heard these albums. What is it about this that appeals to you? It's that feeling of. Unity and oneness and communal joy that you get from a song like We Can Talk, which, by the way, again, yeah. ni- 1968, this isn't a song. This isn't, you know, up against the walls. This isn't, uh, you know, we are the crown of creation. This isn't even revolution. This is, hey, we can talk about this. We, we, you know, everybody, everywhere, do you really care? Just pick up your heads and walk because we can talk about it now. Yeah. Such a positive I love- feeling. I love it so much.
3: Let me tell you something about those group vocals. The key to understanding them is that the three voices are themselves radically different right. in yes, sound. Yes, yes, and They're not making any attempt to blend in a traditional way. Right. The way we were talking about Crosby, Stills, and Nash a moment ago, the way that they attempted to, to create a seamless blend of sound. These guys, it, it, it's, it's, they just, they're happy to stand out. They sound different. And they remind, what they remind me of is, is the Duke Ellington band. Because Ellington hired people deliberately because they sounded different. And he wasn't trying to get the kind of unanimous blend that you expected to hear in a great big band like like Artie Shaw or, or Benny Goodman, where the saxophones are playing as one. These guys all sound like individuals, just like uh, when when Bill Monroe had Flatt and Scruggs in the band. Uh, those voices, they don't fit together in a normal way, and they're not trying to. Separate and together in time, and that's what gives the group its its immediately distinctive quality. That that and the drumming, I think, two sonic aspects of the band that set it apart from anything else that you were hearing. That.
1: The other thing I want to point out about music from Big Pink is that we always thought, you know, I always thought, at least for me as a kid, that, well, Levon Helm is the lead singer of the band uh, because of the fact that, of course, the weight is takes such preeminent focus. Mm-hmm. That's the only song he sings lead vocal on <laughs> on this entire yeah. album. The rest of it is Richard Manuel and Rick Danko, and it's just impossible to underrate uh, the contributions they make. Um, yeah. You've got, you know, I mean, I'm going to let... The, the only thing I will say, the only criticism I will offer is that the last two songs in this album are two Dylan band collaborations. This Wheel's on Fire and I Shall Be Released. I truly believe... They're both good, all right? But I truly believe that both of them were better on their original Basement Tapes versions um, for different reasons. I, I just feel like the Wheel's on Fire just feels more relentless. It, Garth Hudson puts this kind of organy, y uh, you know, prelude into it or i guess more of a fanfare and i don't think it works uh and then i shall be released uh, is where Manuel is is takes the uh vocal up an octave into a falsetto which is an interesting choice and the song still works i think a lot of people still consider it one of their true classics but i still think that that dylan who sung it straighter uh got a little more out of the emotion of that lyric, which is, of course, about like a man in prison who claims he's been wrongfully accused but knows that one day he'll be vindicated.
2: They say every man needs protection They say every man must fall Yeah, I swear I see my reflection place so high above this wall, I see my.
1: Beyond that, everything else on this record is a classic. Even I even like it when Robbie Robertson sings. I can't <laughs> believe I'm saying that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh,
1: on to Kingdom Come, yeah. you know. I've been sitting down here for so darn long, waiting for the end to come, and he sounds like that. I'm actually not exaggerating. You know, maybe we'll drop a clip in. That's what he sounds like, but it works. It works because it's like you've heard these other smooth voices, and all of a sudden whoa you know there's there's the, the squawky guy he's the he's the real non-singer among the band and even he gets input into this but I, it, it's a communal album, uh, scott uh you know i you take a chance here uh, you know, tell me i'm wrong no you
0: i know, don't you know, i but i what i do want to highlight i think the i think perhaps the top vocal performance on the album is one from Manuel, and that's on lonesome Susie. um, uh, um I, I think that's a fantastic track and Manuel's voice just just gives you the the pain in the lyrics there's uh, i think just the second line of the song um always oh, losing and sits and cries and shakes and the way he draws out shakes and his his voice is literally quivering through that word and the ability especially early on in the career of Manuel, to take these these lyrics and to make you feel them and to make you believe he feels them and is living them is truly incredible. And the, that line right at the end of the song, you know, I guess just watching her made me lonesome too. It's some of that, again, the the, the communal feeling of these songs that we're all living and experiencing these things that the narrator, the first person narrator in some of these is, is going through. And uh, Manuel's vocals on, on Lonesome Susie, I think, are, are probably the highlight of the album, vocally. <laughs>
2: So Wondering
3: what to do. Let me tell you a memory. This just occurred to me as we were sitting here. When I first heard uh, Big Pink uh, back in high school, I played it on an old record player that wasn't very good. And I, 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 I am remembering that I couldn't make out a single word to the lyrics of chest fever. <laughs> I still can't. I had no I had no idea what they were singing, and yet I was completely swept up in it. I mean, obviously both because of, mo- money mainly then because of the instrumental playing. That is really the kick-ass song of, of the album from that point of view. But also that the vocal told you what to feel even if you didn't understand what the mm-hmm. words were. Mm-hmm. But the, the, it was some people felt that way.
1: Okay, the best part of Chess Fever for me has always been that moment where it it, it goes from this sort of loping, stomping, organ-driven, uh, you know, very actually, as as you say, the biggest rock moment on the album into. Th- this wheezing, clanking, collapsing Salvation Army oh, band, yes. <laughs> and then, then the, it's Deku. It's like a long, long lingers on. Yeah, I get so weary all known. And you know, I think I think their band's producer, John Simon, is actually playing. Like it's like I think all five of them are in fact doing like you know the full band. There's like a, a trumpet, there's an oboe, there's a tuba. You know, it's it's just like really silliness. And then and then. I don't think I'm gonna last, and then Levon comes back in and says, "Very much longer." And then boom, boom, bam, bam, bam. They could do both. They could be like, um, you know, uh, you know, like a street, you know, Willie and the Poor Boys, in other words. And then they could also be a rock group at the same time in the same song in the same five seconds. That was the most incredible demonstration of sort of musical athleticism that i one of the few that i've ever heard uh, just within that very brief span of time and i love it so much
3: also quite theatrical. Oh, you know? yeah. Very. You, you don't think of it that It is not in any way something... It, it, the only equivalent there I can think of is, is what the Beatles would do uh, when George Martin introduced them to, the, to a wider range of instrumental colors. Yeah. And they started using them to to similar dramatic effects. Uh, but the, the, the shock effect of that change-up, uh, well, yeah, It. it I, I, I can't claim that I truly remember the first time I heard it but I know my jaw must've dropped. How could it not?
1: <laughs> one last thing I want to say about big pink before we move on, which is that this is one of those albums where you should really actually go hunt down the CD because there's, um, a, a lot of bonus tracks. A lot of these were released kind of under false pretenses later on, uh, on the basement tapes, uh, that the Bob Dylan band famous 1975 album, the basement tapes. The, the idea was to sort of pretend that they were part of the basement recordings of big pink, but they weren't, these were actually studio recordings. Um, but these are magnificent recordings there's there, there are there are songs on uh, from the Big Pink Sessions that are every bit as good as what made it onto the album. Stuff like Yazoo Street Scandal, Katie's Been Gone in particular, uh, Ain't No More Kane, uh, Long Distance Operator. These are things that they would actually end up playing with Dylan at various times when he came on to join them for their his guest spots. It's worth checking them out. It's not the kind of stuff we can focus on, but this is an album that not only is the album itself great, but the stuff that didn't make the album, you can see why they cut off because they wanted to focus on a a particular theme and a particular vibe they they successfully got but it's really still worth hearing as well.
3: They really understood what an album is, what it's Uh supposed to be and that I think is a good segue to to their next album and their greatest achievement because they thought of albums as a totality in the same way that in the 50s uh, people like Sinatra and Nelson Riddle had started to think of the album as the art object instead of the individual song. They asked themselves, how do we make this add up to a totality, uh, to a song cycle? Uh, is what it is in classical terms. And as extraordinary as Big Pink is in that way, uh, uh, the next album goes even farther in that direction to an ultimate point, I would say.
0: This second album, guys, I know Jeff loves it. Uh, I know Terry loves it. This is so good. I, I keep questioning myself as as I listen to this and then the rest of the catalog if, if the greatness of this second self-titled album is so massive that it's coloring my perception of some of the other albums, that, that they're better than I think just because they don't match up quite to the heights of the second album. But from start to finish here, there is just not a moment that lags on this second band album, and I think some of the absolute career highlights are here. Um, yeah. You know, up on Cripple Creek ended up being their highest-charting single of their career, twenty-six or so. And if people know uh, the band, they know the weight, and probably up on Cripple Creek, and 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 maybe uh, one more song, which I'm sure what you guys will will get to. But but you know, from the very start, across the Great Divide, this Fats Domino-style piano, wonderful melody, wonderful vocals horns start to come into. Rag Mama Rag is so good, I find myself liking it more and more each time I hear it. This kind of New Orleans-style swing to it, and everybody on this song is at a uh, you know a different instrument than the one they that you would normally attribute them to. Um, it, it just feels so loose. It feels so improvised. It feels like you're perhaps around a campfire listening to the band play their song. But all you
2: wanna do for me-
0: And then later in the album, I think just two two absolute classics: "Whispering Pines." Again, the the hurt and devastation in in the vocals. What a terribly sad and lonely song this is. And Robbie Robertson's acoustic guitar is so delicate to, to carry this uh, through the melody. Wonderful stuff. And 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 King Harvest. My goodness, might be my favorite band song. Uh, the mix on this is absolutely brilliant. Uh-huh. Uh, the way you hear Robbie Robertson's guitar, the way you hear the drums separate from the organ, separate from the bass, all these individual performances coming together to put this this amazing song together with fabulous lyrics. The verses are so frantic. The choruses are so subdued. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's as if these... Uh, This band uh, foresaw, you know, farm aid 15, what, 15 years down the road, the way they talk about the plight of the farmer and the little details of King Harvest that stick out, the just don't judge me by my shoes line. And the thing is, they're writing
1: about the Grange. That's the thing. They're writing, Robertson was writing about the coming of like rural trade unionism in the late 19th century, early 20th century. This is the Grange. This is like, you know, the Midwestern, you know, they're uniting against, uh, you know, uh, tariffs and uh, prices that are, of course, driving down the quality of the the value of their product. This is like, who decides to find this as a theme (laughs) to write a song about? You know, of all the things you're going to write a rock song about, okay, like, you know, I'm going to write about, uh, yeah, chest fever. I'm going to write about, uh, you know, this wheel's on fire. I'm going to write about rural trade unionism. It sounds like, again, I I keep using Billy Bragg as a a punchline uh, on our shows. Like, that's that's the kind of thing that Billy Bragg might come up with out of political commitment because – you know that the central committee told him you need to write a song about this for political purposes.
3: But Robbie Roberts, and then and then it completely floats free, right, yeah. from its political meaning and simply becomes a portrait of, of life. life, and one, and one notice that doesn't end with a vocal. Yes, the last thing you hear is the guitar solo, which takes it to an even. I, I, I would almost say. A transcendent level of musical state. It's
1: I think the first because- guitar solo on a, an album by the band, and it's not even a guitar solo really. It's like this very funky Steve Cropper rhythm guitar kind of a thing too, which is oh, what-
3: very good call there. Mm-hmm. He and Cropper mm-hmm. are absolutely yeah. off the same branch.
1: And 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 the thing about that is is the it's the humbleness of it, uh, you know. There was a guitar solo. I think they cut out of To Kingdom Come on um, music from Big Pink because they realized, well, that's not what we're doing here. We're not pushing our voices for. We're not being a normal traditional rock band. And then, you know, at King Harvest, finally, oh, hey, you want a guitar solo? Well, no, this is just what serves the song. It's it's every bit as eloquent as a final verse would have been. It's as so, eloquent
3: as speech.
2: Hmm.
3: It, it it says Mendelsso- Mendelssohn said that music says what speech can't say. And I I must say, I think that that's what happens at the end of King Harvest, Mm. that the guitar solo tells us something that even the lyrics themselves, beautifully wrought as they are, cannot tell us. It moves into another realm of thought and feeling.
1: Terry, now it's your turn. Now tell us why the band is the greatest album that you have ever heard. Which, boy, I am very close to agreeing with you about.
3: The unity, the the the, to, the it's completely successful as a totality. That every it, the, it's paced correctly, every song leads into the other one. Everyone is on the highest possible level of of achievement, both musically and lyrically. Uh, the whole thing hangs together in a way that you just don't encounter in in rock a music that is typically has slapdash elements uh, for very good reasons of which we're all quite well aware Uh, but this this is this is a work of art that is as fully created i think as a symphony or or a a novel Every, every song is a different panel everything leads to the same conclusion um And when you start to take it apart and start to listen to the individual songs, and as happened, I think, probably to all of us when we moved away from listening to records on vinyl to listening to them electronically and started to to experience songs out of context, we realized just beautiful how striking these songs are. But I think they're best experienced when they're heard one after another.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: They were meant to be. Uh, And all the things that we talked about in connection with Big Pink, they're raised to a higher level here. Uh, The songs are profoundly adult songs about adult audience, about the joys and sorrows of adult life. Uh, It's the most mature rock album I can think of, at least the most mature one that was made in the youth of the people that we think of as being classic rock rockers. These guys sound like they're in their 50s. They sound like they've lived like people in their fifties, uh, and I'm amazed that I was able to receive it when I was a teenager, that that it knocked me flat. But it took me decades to come to a point where I could appreciate just how profound a statement this is about human life. I mean, so- uh, and yeah, I mean, I'm am ta- talking the way you talk about a great novel, mm-hmm. and I think that that's appropriate language to use here. I, I think, or or one of Schubert's song cycles. I mean, I just. I don't think rock has anything better, more serious, more fully realized to offer.
1: Okay. So some albums are declared dated or timeless based on, I don't know, particular qualities like the lyrics or the instrumentation or production gimmickry, you know, that either end up trapping them in cultural Amber, you know, like sort of like the psychedelic stuff, like love that's forever right. changed. Right. Or Leave them curiously and amazingly unscathed by musical faddishness. but the band, you know, that second album is the rarest of things. It's, it's, it's an act, actually when I say the rarest of things, I think it is singular. It's an album that exists outside of time,
3: uh, and it rather, sounded that way when it was new. When I I heard it when it was new, exactly. And it sounded it sounded the same way then.
1: So that's the thing. So the album was released in nineteen sixty nine, but it could have. Just as plausibly come from 1869. The songs, every one of them, they speak of like, you know, certain historical events. Like, you know, you got the Stoneman raids that, you know, uh, and a visit from Robert E. Lee on the night they drove old Dixie down to, as we already discussed, you know, rural trade unionism and the Grange and King Harvest. But the music and the performance of it, it just sounds. It stands really eerily outside the continuum of actual chronological time, and you know, this is the same point that I made right at the start of the show. It just gestures towards this permanent, idealized, near-mythical imagining of American history, which is – truly amazing and 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 almost, you know, hilariously ironic that the most American of albums ever made was done by a band that was four-fifths Canadian <laughs> really? with, you know, with a razor like, back in there, the ringer it's, as you like,
3: it's like Conrad. sometimes it is the outsider who sees things more completely as they are, and who longs to aspire to their condition mm-hmm. uh, who 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 for whom it's a second language. and of course, the music for these guys wasn't second language. They, they played this all their lives. Um, but they did stand, except for Helm, a step outside the world of which they were singing. And that it, kind of artistic detachment is not in any way to be sneezed at.
1: It's one of the very few albums I have ever owned that has a palpable sort of aura and mystique to mm. it. Let, you listen to it, and I, it feels like uh, a magic spell is being worked upon you, you know, you know. You, you listen to like the cadences of Rock and Chair, where like uh, again these Canadians are singing about being, you know, oh to be home again in old Virginia, with <laughs> my very with my very best friend. They called him Ragtime Willie, uh, and it's like it, it's a song about old men who were sailors in like Hampton Roads. Like how do they know? Like you know, if you're from Canada, how do you know that? Like well, yeah, you know the Virginia naval tradition. That's a thing. Uh, they got it. They found it. And, like, yeah, you know, we're gonna, you're gonna while away the rest of our lives. We're gonna, you know, isn't it gonna be nice to listen to the old stale jokes? It's just so moving, profoundly how did they moving. Know, how do they know they're 20? How did they're 24. They
3: how would, what it would be like to be old? How did they know that? That is or, an extraordinary leap of the the creative imagination. And or, or, now that I'm in my early 60s, I know how big a leap it was.
1: I mean, or there's like, when you awake. You know, like, you know, it's like almost like a a song of growing up, you know, you know, as like an innocent little kid in kind of a a rural place, you know, like Ollie told me I'm a fool. So I walked down the road a mile. I went to the house that brings a smile and I sat upon my grandpa's knee. And what do you think he said to me? He sang me a lullaby when you awake. And then, of course, it it, it cuts to the end, which seemingly is unrelated because it's like, what is it? You know, like wash my hand in uh, lie water. I got a date with the captain's daughter. You know you can go and tell your brother, we're sure gonna love one another and it just this is, this, this is stuff that actually can it's, it sounds horribly maudlin to admit it, but it brings a tear to my eye when I'm just like, oh. how did people this young, this removed from this context understand what it felt to be like this to do this, to live in this way and and, and really encapsulate you know the what it meant. To to have these family ties and, and to live in this world that that you think in theory they you know as touring musicians how did they ever know this
2: but they got it right. When you awake, you-
3: I'll tell you something. I, uh, my mother, uh, was raised on a dirt farm in the Depression. She was a uh, river baptized. Of all my records, this was the one she liked best. Hmm.
0: And this, I mean, you know, T- Terry mentioned how everything flows, and it, it, it's better to experience this as an album. It also because I think this takes you through the how talented they were as a unit, as a, as a band, right? Because you have it's not necessarily different styles, but different strengths coming through on all of these songs. That amazing bottom end down up on Cripple Creek and that funky uh, wah-wah clavinet playing on the tune. You have the, the, that the guitar riff, the stuttering guitar riff from uh, Jemima Surrender. Kind of that boogie-woogie blues of Lookout Cleveland. These guys could play a lot of different styles. Heck, the guys could play a lot of different instruments. And all yeah. of their talents were on full display from start to start to finish in different ways, on different songs, but you hear all of it. All they were capable of at this time, after that apprenticeship, uh, you know, those those apprenticeships with Bob Dylan and the Basement Tapes, and after they broke through on Big Pink, this is just a culmination, I think, of everything they had been working for through those years.
3: In art criticism, we talk about third period art, the the art of old people uh, who have stripped away all of the source and gotten to the essence of things. And uh, this is one of the very, very few examples I know. Um, O'Connor's Wise Blood is another one, of a, a work of art by young people that partakes of the the atmosphere, the spirit of third period, third period art. I I, I I continue to be astonished by that.
1: There are so many other songs on this record that I could just rhapsodize about all, all day long. Whispering Pines, Unfaithful Servant. I mean, and, and I know Scott is a fan of both of those as well. One of those will actually make it onto the end of, yes. you know, when I name my five favorite songs. But there's one that I just, you know, I mentioned it at the beginning of the show, and we can't pass through the band without talking about it again, which is The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, uh, which is. Probably the most amazing act of uh, cultural empathy that I have ever heard in my entire life. In that, it, not only is it written, of course, you know, where Robbie Robertson, Canadian, you know, you know, Levon Helm was, was of course from Arkansas, so he did have an understanding of the South and, and you know the way they felt about the end of the Civil War. But had, did the most miraculous of things. It, it, you listen to the story of, of Virgil Kane, you know, you know, just. Some you know you know poor dirt farmer from Virginia goes off to fight in a war. Yeah, he he he's, he's, he doesn't care about all the all the big things. He's not about states' rights or slavery or any of that. He's just like, well, yeah, you know, there's a war, and I'm supposed to just enlist and fight. You know, and we fight for our state, and that's what you do. And this is, of course, you know, I'm as again, I, I'm a Yankee Unionist, born and bred for the, you know, for till the day I die and I was stunned even as a child at the fact that you could listen to a song that could make you understand <laughs> In a way that wasn't like demonizing, you know, the people on the other side of, of what I do actually, you know, essentially believe to be a, you know, an elemental war of good versus evil. I mean, I mean we fought to liberate the slaves and keep the union together. Those were, if there's anything worth fighting for, it's that. And that you ask yourself, well, why did they fight? And then you listen to a guy saying, you know, like, you know, like my like my brother before me, I will work the land. I like my father before me. I took a rebel stand. My brother was just 18, proud and brave, but a Yankee laid him in his grave. And I swear by the mud below my feet, you can't raise a cane back up when he's in defeat. And then all those, those ragged harmonies come back, and you know, Garth Hudson on the clavinet, the night they drove old Dixie down. Everybody was singing, and. What were they singing? There's no words. It's just this tuneless wail. Nah, 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 nah. And you feel the pain. You feel the pain and the empathy for the loss of a side that had to lose. That, that it was it was good and it was right and it was just that they lost and yet you still feel that the average people who actually participated in that war, the guys who picked up guns and got shot and died and you know had to had to sacrifice their lives for that war, you feel what it must have meant to them. And again, Canadians in nineteen sixty nine, how? How is it possible that they could do that? I, I still to this day, it's necromancy. It, it almost, as I said, it feels magical. It feels like there were spells being cast. I'm, I'm, I'm not an occult kind of a guy, but it feels <laughs> preternatural when I listen to that song, and uh, I have no. never heard anything quite like it.
3: Another way is it's it's theatrical. It is role playing on the very high, and it reminds me of a line from C.S. Lewis's *An Experiment in Criticism*: "In reading literature, I become a thousand men and yet remain myself." An actor brings his own emotions to a role, to a situation one that may be profoundly alien to him, especially when he's playing a villain. And yet he understands that none of us sees himself as a villain. That's that's the key to acting that kind of part. And uh,
1: or, or as Renoir would have said, Ren War would have said, every man has his reasons. We you have know reasons, yeah. You know? exactly. Here,
3: you want an object lesson in what the band is all about. Remember that the hit single on this record was not by the band. It was, it was a truly milk cover version by john Baez of all people mm, uh, a I performance that is to this day how i think most people know the song are aware of it and takes every element of this recording that makes it true and distinctive and removes it uh, and boy to two versions if that doesn't teach you a lesson about what what great art and what the band is all about then nothing will
1: well, we did we did an episode last week about uh, great cover songs, and then actually uh, one of our guests actually asked us to do, like, uh, hey, why well, don't I do, like, worst cover songs? <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> I, and literally the Baez version of The Ninth That Drove Old Dixie Down was one of, like, the five that immediately jumped into my head for the exact reasons that you mentioned, that it strips. I can't. What every possessed song. her to
3: record that song? I, I I have no idea why that woman in particular would have recorded that
1: song. I, just, I mean, it, I, I, it's a fine I melody, I guess, but like, how could she relate? <laughs> it just really doesn't convey it, you know. It doesn't come across. Yeah, what she, yeah, although what
3: she does tell us is that it does have a great tune.
2: Well, that's, uh, that's, right, uh, right. We
1: forget that
3: uh, these, these songs are not just totalities; uh, they also distinctive melodies. They're not just lyrics. They're not just great instrumental performances. They're the whole thing. They're real songs. Um, Distinctive individual melody is often the thing that is missing from from rock, even the best rock. But these are real songs. These are songs in the same way that the great songs of the 30s and 40s and 50s were songs.
0: So we like this album. I think it's safe to say. Right, yes. I think
3: so. I think so. (laughs) Political beats. Scott Bertram. If I was was going out the window, it would be the first one I grabbed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Scott Tram, Jeff Blair, and uh, Terry Teachout is with us this week talking about the band. Find him on Twitter, at Terry Teachout. Drama critic for The Wall Street Journal. Author of the plays, Satchmo at the Waldorf, Billy and Me biographies. Pops, uh, life of Louis Armstrong, and the skeptic, a life of H.L. Mencken. So we get to uh, third album stage fright um opinions vary uh i think opinions might vary on this uh, on this particular show in fact um they do who wants to take this one first this is this is i don't know if it's uh, people might say it's where it started to go bad but this is uh you know the the music on this is a little more upbeat the music on here is a little more buoyant but what's hidden behind the music and the lyrics begins to get a little i want to say scary frightening um, you see exactly what this band, the band is dealing with as they experience success, not just on the yeah. road but their interpersonal relationships and what they're doing to themselves through uh, through addiction right.
3: that, Yeah. let me go because this is an album about which my feelings have evolved over the years. It was the first album by the band that I bought when it was just out absolutely New. And I had, I had digested the first two albums and, and been transformed by them. And then I heard Stage 5. And remember, I'm a teenager, so I don't have a sophisticated frame of reference for it, understanding any of this. But I realized that it sounds different from its predecessors. It sounds a little... It doesn't have the, the, the tonal depth and richness of the Brown album. There's something that's not quite the same. And... I couldn't make the jump to appreciating it for what it was and it's good parts. And I put it aside. Uh, I listened to it a few times when it was new. And then I just didn't listen to it at all. And it wasn't until well into adulthood, by which time I actually knew what had happened, uh, that, that the guys in the band were beginning to be at each other's throats and they were beginning to have problems with drugs and with having a lot of money around. And with all, all the things that happened to people who suddenly become famous and by that time, I had also experienced art about art, art about the condition of people who who have chosen to write about the experience of becoming famous. And, and I understood what was going on in a song like Stage Fright. Um, and I also was able to say to myself, no, John Simon is not the producer of this album. And mm-hmm. so it sounds a little bit cleaner, a little bit brighter. It doesn't have that wonderful character of the Brown album. But its best parts... Are completely individual in their own way uh, they are satisfying in their own way and in particularly one of the songs Daniel and the Sacred Harp you have a song that, that is Robertson par excellence all the things that we've been talking about that that sum up what he is as a songwriter are there and now uh, in my 60s I come back to this album with almost as much pleasure as I do greater predecessors. Uh, And the the flaws just don't matter to me as much because the book is closed. They're not going to make more records. It no longer exists. If there are records by them that just aren't good enough, then fine, we don't have to listen to them. But generally speaking, you try to take great artists for what they have to offer you at the moment, uh, to listen to what's there instead of what you wish were there. And what is there in stage fright uh, seems to me as good as
1: anything that they ever gave us for me the darkness of stage fright uh is something that again like terry pointed out it's immediately obvious Mm -hmm. it's immediately obvious and and, and in a weird way it's immediately obvious on a song like strawberry wine which is the first song on the album levon singing it co-wrote it um you know i've you i bought the reissue liner notes on cd and the guy who wrote them just flat out said like yeah levon is is is, you know out of his head on smack when he's recording these vocals i'm like well, first of all, I'm I'm surprised that you admitted that, and second of all, I I can hear it. It sounds slack. It yeah. sounds, you know, it sounds like it's a funny, good time song, and it yet there's something curiously amiss about it. And then followed up there right there by "Sleeping" Richard Manuel. Um, boy, this is a song, you know. In light of what would happen with 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 Manuel, for those who don't know, uh, he. He committed suicide. Uh, he hanged himself in 1986. It's just so tragic, you know. He, he just so sad because what a beautiful talent, what a beautiful soul. Um, you know, he had a lot of uh, drinking problems, and I think he was also sort of, sort of, you know, incomprehensibly shy. And I think that played a lot of. Uh, a role in the way he retreated as a songwriter from the band you uh, once robertson he seemed that you know it seemed like robertson was more than more than willing to just assert himself and sort of be the dominant member and manny just thought to himself well I'm, I'm i'm just gonna lay back and play the piano and sing i don't have to worry about this anymore i don't know what it did to his confidence it's just so sad that he's gone and then you think of a song like sleeping where he talks about like you know, the sweet release of sleep, mm. which almost feels a little bit like Hamlet talking about you know to die to sleep to dream, you know, <laughs> yeah. cobweb cobwebs on my pillow, and you just like, did he mean it at the time in 1971, 1970? No, probably not. But in retrospect, it feels spooky, and it's always affected. The first half of Stage Fright for mm-hmm. me. It, uh, so I have always considered this to be half of a great album. The first half of it, literally the first five songs, I just don't like. I've never liked, you know, sleeping time to kill just another whistle stop all the glory um but then the second half you flip it over and you start with the shape i'm in which robertson very explicitly wrote about richard manuel and his state of mind uh and you know that is a great song it's one of the most famous hit singles uh and that suddenly the album takes off daniel and the sacred harp is one of those uh, songs that, again, just takes on greater meaning the further away you get from it. It becomes much more of an allegory, uh, and, a, and a kind of a deeply troubling allegory within not only you know the history of the band, but you can use it as sort of, you know you can apply it to almost anything in life, too. Um, but it's the last two songs on stage right that will all be sing to me, that, that really kind of make this band for me, make this album for me, and again, cement them is great. They didn't just have those first two albums. They also did the songs Stage Fright and The Rumor. Stage Fright is, uh, the title track of the album, is one of uh, the most fantastic songs Robbie Robertson ever wrote. It's... A a song that is so cryptic that you will find people confidently pronouncing that it's about this and it's about that, (laughs) and they're completely different things. Like, oh yeah, well that's that's about Richard Manuel. No, no, that's about Bob Dylan. No, 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 that's actually about Robbie Robertson's uh, problem with stage fright. Who knows? Nobody has ever actually managed to nail down what the real meaning of stage fright is, which is nominally about like you know a kid who's you know they gave this plow boy his fortune and fame and since that day he's never been the same put him on stage and you know he's he's in the he's in the spotlights and he freezes and he doesn't know what to do and he's terrified and then he just thinks about where he's come from and and what's expected of him and he melts and boy it's beautiful and then the best part about it is when rick danko who rick danko sings the song you know and he, he he gets to that lyric in the middle eight you know, where he says, you know, now that if he says he's afraid, take him at his word. And for the price the poor boy has paid, he gets to sing just like a bird. And then, oh, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> and then Garth comes in with this great, great organ solo. And that's such a beautiful way of putting it. It's like, yeah, you know, you know you've, this is the Faustian bargain that you've made.
2: I've got fireworks. Yeah.
3: Parable. It's a parable. Yes, it, it is. It, 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 it's a it, poem. I mean, it, how how could you, you? You certainly can take it at its face value, because it is a song about the human condition.
1: And but it we'll, is absolutely about like you know, like you know that 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 one that one couplet. And for the price yeah. the poor boy is paid, he gets to sing just like a bird. And then, what does that mean? That could mean so many different things. And you know. And then, of course, the musical solo that saw, that, that follows it uh, is completely complementary to it. Uh, Scott, were you going to say something? I didn't want to cut yeah, you off
0: Quickly Quickly, this is one of my favorite songs uh, in the catalog, and certainly one I figured out on the album, too. I think two things stand out to me. You, you mentioned Danko's vocals, which really make the song, and he's the perfect guy <laughs> to sing these lyrics for this song. Because he's a little jittery, right? Yes. He's a little shaky. He's a little fragile. Uh, he's a little light and and conveys the vulnerability that I think is important to the, the core of stage fright. And then I also have to tell you that Levon Helm's drums, that kind of off-kilter, off-beat oh, yeah. that carries its way through stage fright, really makes it for me, too. This you know, this, this album um, starts for me, in, in the next few at least, where there are just some really high highlights uh, on these albums And I don't exactly know what to make of the rest of them And on, on stage fright The title track is certainly one of those Really high highlights That showed the band could still perform They still knew how to put songs together They still knew uh, how to play their parts So well and how to, how to Choose who played those parts So well and uh, you mentioned Hudson too and I, you know his, his Layers of, of organ On stage fright also amazing Great song
1: you know the last song I wanted to mention on this record. It was those last two. The one was stage fright, but the last song on the album, I will say and proudly stand upon this rock, is the most <laughs> underrated. It's the most underrated song in the entire career of the band. Uh, it's called "The Rumor." It's, you won't find it on any compilation album. I think they put it on the box set. Um, you know the five CD box set that costs one hundred and twenty-five dollars. So like, yeah, you know, good luck finding it. Just find it on youtube or something like that uh it's called the rumor and it is to me in in a way you know the band went on to do a lot of really great music after this and we'll talk about that uh but this is the last hurrah for their truly classic mode it's all three it's levon it's rick it's richard they're trading vocals and in robbie robertson comes up with a lyric that is just absolutely beautiful. You're talking about when the rumor comes to your town, you know, it grows and grows. And and, and where it started, nobody knows. Uh, you, your neighbors will invite it in, but maybe it's a lie. It could even be a sin, but they'll repeat the rumor again. And then, you know, they go through three verses, and then there's this final verse where they're all just like, you know, bouncing off the walls with one another. You know, close your eyes, hang your head until that fog blows away. You know, and then Richard screams, let it roll away, let it roll away. Open up your arms and feel the good. It's coming. It's a brand new day. And just, oh, it, this is the place where I feel like the classic era of the band kind of shut a door and it was appropriate. I feel almost like Robbie Robertson knew the door was closing and he chose to end it on uh, one of their most transcendent moments.
3: think they all must have known uh, that, you know, no matter how gifted a group is, you can only keep that level of of concentration together for a, a certain length of time. I mean, even, even excluding the fact that there are outside forces working on you, fame and drugs and all of these things, even under the best of circumstances, it, you just can't hold it together. Uh, you, you slip out of focus and I can't help but think that they must have known, like, like James says, uh, you know, we shall never be again as we were. Uh, they, and they wouldn't. They would, have, they would have moments that were as good as anything that they ever did, but they were never again able to create uh, an album that was a totality, uh, mm-hmm. a total artistic statement. And uh, it was why I could never, for years, listen to the later albums, because I was so intensely aware of what a peak achievement the first three records were, that, that I, wasn't, I wasn't willing to, to take the later albums on their own terms to, to accept that some of the songs were as good as anything that they'd done and most of them weren't. Hmm. Uh, and I think there, the fact that we've now entered into the pick-and-choose era of, of downloading uh, may have made a difference because you can you, you listen to albums now more often than not, not as a totality, but you're listening to individual tracks. And so you can come to the later work of the band and you can pick and choose and you can say, well, gee, that's they nailed it there. This record doesn't work. Um, I probably won't ever listen to this again. Um, But boy, right at that moment, I mean, I don't I don't know whether uh, the rumor was actually the last thing that was recorded for that album, but it might just as well have been, you know,
1: it feels like it, doesn't it? it? Sure does. I mean, and of course, that brings us to, and, and and maybe we can dispose of this quickly, is the fourth of their first four albums. Every kind of like cuts it off here. There's a caesura that we have with the first four band albums because they were all original material. And then they t- took a long break before releasing another album of their own music. Uh, this is Cahoots. This is or 1971. Um, this has been almost universally panned. This album. People just ask themselves, "What the hell happened?" And they re- resort to a lot of things like drugs, Robbie Robertson being a jackass, um, various things, you know, Richard Manuel retreating into sort of you know terminal shyness. But I gotta say, I even in my show notes, the first version of my show notes says I had a very sour view of this record, which I had when I listened to it as a young man. I went back and listened to it again recently, uh, even just, just in the last day. And I was like surprised at, that I don't hate it as much as I know I'm supposed to. Life is a Carnival is a really wonderful song. When I Paint My Masterpiece is their Dylan cover. Mm-hmm. That's a great song. I mean, I'm, I don't care. I don't care what you think about like these later period albums. Their version of When I Paint My Masterpiece by Bob Dylan is fantastic.
2: Gotta hurry on back through my hotel room.
1: And the other one that I really think is really worth singling out is 4 uh, Percent Panama," which is the Van Morrison collaboration. There's actually, and this is for the, the real uh, Tyra, the real kind of like you know, um, you know, OCD band lovers. There's a version of this on the boxed set of uh, uh, musical history, which is just Richard Manuel on piano with Van Morrison. None of the uh, Garth Hudson sort of organs and drums in the background. They're just just it's two lions yelling at each other and it's just a beautiful sound van Morrison was in his um, you know like you know early 70s Woodstock phase with wild night and you know Tupelo honey and all that so he was around and boy it's really great to hear these two fantastic voices uh, dueling it out with each other but yeah the rest of that album just feels like a a, a um, a collapse, like like not these... not
3: the River. hymn. I would say that's one of the masterpieces. But well, generally okay. speaking, the album is has gone out of focus. You, you, and I remember how dismayed I was when it was new, and I thought, well, that's it for the band. Uh, and I sort of pulled the plug on my switchboard on them at that point.
0: And I, I think Jeff hit the songs that I, I, Life is a Carnival, When I Hit My Masterpiece, the first two songs on the album. Are perhaps the best two songs in the album. I, I'd also salvage "Smoke Signal" from the from the trash Sheep. I, I think that's one of the songs on the album where that actually feels like they're playing as a band once again and sound a little bit like that unit that they were on previous uh, albums. Uh, Levon Helm has the has the vocals on "Smoke Signal." I think that's still a, a song that's deserving to be to be salvaged off the album. But you could tell it was the end of, of the line, at least for this iteration and, and, and this kind of grouping. And no surprise, it was, what, four years until the next album of original material from the band.
1: Yeah, and it can't be an accident, right? I mean, no. uh, they, they, they clearly had burned out, uh, whether it was, you know, as I said, drugs or, you know, Robbie Robertson's overweening personality or whatever it was, they, they, they'd, they'd had enough of it. But, you know... It, just you know, passing through as we get to the next record, it's it's worth pointing out that uh, they did uh, do something I think that is pretty worthwhile, and that is their collaboration with Bob Dylan on Planet Waves. Um, Bob Dylan, you know, was they they recorded an oldies album that we'll get to right after this um, but uh, when Dylan said like yeah you know I just got I, I, I moved to a new label I, I want to do something different you know he went through his whole like I'm going to lose my popularity phase with self-portrait and you know, you know Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid and so he said all right brought the band with him, and they recorded Planet Waves. And there's a song, one particular song, specifically, that uh, I think represents one of Dylan's finest, finest, finest ever recordings, precisely because he was least unafraid to be purely sentimental, and that is his Forever Young. Yes, uh, yes. I love Forever Young, uh, and Forever Young is one of those things that sometimes people say, like, oh, well, yeah, it's, it's a little clergy. No, no. That that's a beautiful song, and, and you know, may God bless and keep you always. May may your feet always be strong. That's a beautiful song. May God keep you forever young, and the way the band plays it, they play all through it. They. And even at the end, there's this, this beautiful kind of like, it quiets down, and then it builds up to a final crescendo, an instrumental crescendo. Uh, the band's performance on "Planet Waves" is really remarkable, and I think on that song, in particular, is most remarkable of all.
3: They'd been relieved of the responsibility to lead.
1: Yes, yes. They could They could go back to being, you know, sidemen, which they had enjoyed so much during, you know, the, the 1966 era or even, you know, the Ronnie Hawkins era for that yeah. matter. You know, but yes, what a beautiful song. And right before that, uh, this is kind of a marking time album. They had their own record contract to work off. What they did is they recorded, uh, this is something I, and, In previous episodes of Political Beats, I have referred to the fact that every time a great band records a quote unquote covers album, it's a bad sign. (laughs) Uh, You know, whether it was David Bowie doing pinups, or you know, it's the band doing Moon Dog matinee. Uh, it's usually a pretty clear indication of creative exhaustion. Mm-hmm. And I still feel that way about this album. and I went back and I listened to it again several times because if there's a band that I would have expected more than most others, to really kind of knock a, a record like this out of the park, it would have been the band. Um, but my criticism of Moon Matinee is that so many of these covers feel very pro forma, like they just knock them out. You know, they, they, there's nothing special about them that makes them feel like, well, this isn't just a song that you know and you might like. Uh, this is the band doing this. We just did a covers episode. Yes, you know,
3: except for Mystery Train, and yeah, that yeah. is exactly
1: what one I was. Of gonna the, say.
3: One of the supreme masterpieces of early rock. One of the most. I mean, the most. I would mystery. venture to say, profound. And, yeah, exactly. And exactly.
1: They, this is a, this is a song about life and death. Yes. In every and every They way. were
3: on it. They knew. They knew that, th- they knew that this was this was serious business. The song and then itself. that was the
1: one song on this album that they do differently. And yeah. that, Cherry, talk to us about that, please.
3: You don't need to do much to "Mystery Train" because the song will take you there. The song will carry you there. I mean, it's it's one of the few rockabilly songs of that period that has a lyric that really goes beyond the obvious. And, and you can see why the band would have been drawn to it because that's the kind of thing that they wrote. They were looking for, for broader, more universal values uh, in, in, in lyric writing.
1: By the way, before I hate to interrupt you, but because I just realized that there are so many people who listen to us who might not realize Because you know, hey, you know, as time recedes, if you're not familiar, you don't know this. Mystery Train is a song. It comes from the early '50s. It is a song that was, you know, first I think recorded by uh, a black soul artist, a Junior Parker or something like that. I Mm. I may be wrong, Uh, but then Elvis made it famous, and then everybody's made it famous. But this is a song about like the big black train that has come to take your baby away in a hearse it's a song about death the mystery train is a train that comes to take the one that you love into the afterlife if you if if for people who are Springsteen fans who may know the song Cadillac Ranch. Cadillac Ranch is is jokingly a rewrite of Mystery Train. Big black big black Cadillac come to take my baby away. Mystery Train come to take my baby away. This is a song about as a you know as we say the you know most basic and profound things about life and death uh put into a rock song. And so I'm sorry to interrupt but like Oh no, but you're
3: quite right to point that out.
1: The, the context there is I, I just because we know it, Mm -hmm. but I think a lot of people may not. And I
3: think that, you know, whatever else they were, emotions they were going through making this album, and I'm sure that most of them were simply well, we've got a contract. They knew that a song like this required the best that was in them, and they gave us that. They gave us a performance I I, I hate to reuse the word, but sometimes you get down to this level, and there's no other way to avoid it. A deeply mysterious-sounding recording of, of this song about the most profound mystery of, of human experience and it just I think most of the time when in later years the band played this kind of material they were at their best when they had the most fun with it you know, like like I don't want to hang on my rock and roll shoes right. but they did this song like it was one of their own and it sounds like one of their own it would not have been out of place on the earlier albums
0: The only other song that comes close to that is "Share Your Love with Me," uh, where we get a, a, a really great vocal performance from Richard Manuel, um, a soulful, restrained uh, performance, a soulful yet restrained performance from Manuel. I, I think "Share Your Love with Me" is another one that um, feels like they're like they're playing. But this is you know this is a time when they're not. It's hard to put everything you've got into something when you're you're not getting along with everyone. Else, You're playing with. It's a difficult thing. I have never been in that exact situation, but I think we've all been on teams in one way, shape or form where not everyone's pulling on the same end of the rope. And, and it seems like that's exactly what was happening during this time. They couldn't get mm. together and write new music. They were already, uh, uh, Helm especially, uh, unhappy with Robertson taking so much control uh, of, the, of the writing, getting soul writing credits uh, on, on a number of songs. And from Robertson's point of view, you know, if you read, he, he w- will tell you he tried every way he knew to get Richard Manuel to write more music. Um, you know, he would present him with ideas. He would, he would try to get him in any way he knew how to, to continue to contribute to the band. And it just wasn't happening. And Robertson's line is that on that is, you know, he he said, I think some people have five songs in them. Some people have 15, some people have a hundred. And maybe that's all that Richard Manuel had in him. were those songs he wrote at the beginning? Then I, what, I think two on stage fright co-writes and that was it so this was absolutely it. right about yeah. that
3: I mean songwriting like all forms of creative effort is a muscle uh, if you really have it the more you exercise it the stronger it gets but there are people who have only one one novel five songs a play in them Usually people who are drawing directly on personal experience. Mm-hmm. And once it's gone, especially if they're doing damage to themselves in other areas of their life, mm-hmm. they're just not going to get it back. And when that happens, and you're a person like Robertson who has better control over your life, you are naturally going to expand into the vacuum of chaos and try to make things happen.
1: Yeah, you and that's- just can't help it. Yeah, and that that is obviously the, you know the sort of the sad story of the band is that everybody it, 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 we referenced it several times during the show already. It's a commonplace to make fun of Robbie Robertson's pretension, um, but if you ever actually listen to him talk about the group. He's done a couple of documentaries. There's a fantastic documentary out there. Uh, I think it was done by VH1 about the making of the first two albums, the music from Big Pink and the band. He's very complimentary. I mean, he he, he doesn't. He I mean, he understands the contribution that everyone made. You know, not not only just you know Manuel and Danko and Helm, but but also John Simon, their producer. Um, he he absolutely. seems to come across as a guy who is, you know, even to this day a little bit tormented at the fact that that people refer to him as this pretentious prat because he does he does well. Listen, he, I can relate. He does the kind of thing that I do. He kind of rhapsodizes intellectually about like music and and ends up coming across like a little bit floaty and out of his head. Um, but at the end of the day, he was the guy who, when nobody else would come up with music, right, right. came came up with music. Hey, hey, we have a contract to fulfill. We have a we have responsibilities that we have to actually, you know, put forth here. And he did it. And so that's why I, even as I make fun of the fact that on the last waltz, he sounds like, oh yeah, life on the road is so hard. You know, we can all laugh at that. Um, At the end of the day, he did have to end up shouldering a burden that he didn't necessarily ask for. I think he expected it to be a more democratic band than an end out turning it ended up being uh because of the fact that you know his other guys in the group just sort of retreated you know maybe they did it because he was just so forceful i don't
3: know. look i i sympathize totally with him you know if you've ever worked in an environment with a small number of people one or more of whom is an alcoholic then you're going to you're, you're going to sympathize with somebody like this yeah he I mean, was all he's an artist of extraordinary gifts i think the the tutelary spirit of the group. And he knew he was surrounded by people of tremendous talent. Particularly, I think, knew how great a talent Helm was. Mm -hmm. But they're falling apart on him. They don't want to play. They have their own problems. And he stuck with it a lot longer than most people would have done. You know,
1: And I'm glad that he stuck with it because it led to what I think most people would consider to be the band's last great hurrah. Their last truly great album, and I think this is a legitimately fantastic record, which is Northern Lights Southern Cross, yes, nineteen seventy-five. Uh this is the first record of original material they had put out in you know, as Scott mentioned, four years. You know, they had been, you know, nominally occupied doing other things, playing with Bob Dylan, touring with Bob Dylan, putting out a covers album. But, you know, in retrospect, we can all understand what they were covering for is the fact that the inspiration wasn't there, the band Unity wasn't there, maybe even Robertson himself had felt a little bit stifled for inspiration. But what he came up with on Northern Lights, Southern Cross, is an album that I don't think it, to me personally, I don't think it's as good as the first two records, um, but it is a fantastic album. And in particular, I've always I, I I've come around to really loving Uh, songs like it makes no difference acadian driftwood and ophelia and even some of the lesser known songs i think hobo jungle i like that song i think it's (laughs) a really good song there are very few songs on this album that i would consider even less than okay and uh i think jupiter hollow that's the one i would put the single out in particular because the the famous ones other people will rise to defense them uh jupiter hollow i think is like a wonderfully underrated song heavy on Garth Hudson's uh, synth contributions Mm -hmm. I think that is just a magnificent tune that I have never seen anyone talk about ever for any reason I listened to it again literally minutes before we started the show to confirm that I was right in my assessment that's a great (laughs) song I don't know why people don't
2: like it
3: You know, the thing about this album is that artists do not normally return to form after they've been off it for several years. I, it, once in a while it happens. I was, I was just writing a drama column for The Wall Street Journal by Edward Albee, who, who went for several years without being able to write a decent play it was just appalling what was coming out of his pen. And then he comes back with three tall women and boom, he wins a Pulitzer and deserves it. But that just doesn't happen. Usually when the magic is gone, it doesn't come back. And in this album, it comes back. I don't know how, I mean, I just, I can't fathom what it took for them to get that out of themselves mm-hmm. and for Robertson to get, to get it out of himself at that point in the history of the group, but they returned to form. That's a kind of miracle.
0: And this is this is an album and I, I will spoiler uh, a li- a little here. This is my second album in addition to the the self-titled and I find myself going back and forth quite a bit and w- why this one I think it's I think it probably is their most consistent start to finish album outside of that self-titled second album. And there are a few things I really like about it. Look, this is this is a lot of Robbie Roberts, and He wrote every single song alone. And his guitar work I think is highlighted on this album, in different ways, and more so than on than on previous albums, there are times here where, at least for moments, it feels like that band is in the same headspace, so to speak, mm-hmm. as as they were early on. Uh, on "Ring Your Bell," which is a fun song, um, the three voices again
1: uh, are. Yeah, are, are "Ring a Your Bell" it. is a great song. I, again, yeah. it's like you you listen to people talk about even the later highlights of the band's career; they never mention "Ring Your Bell." They never mentioned Jupiter Hollow. Those are both great songs.
0: Yeah, Jupiter Hollow is a great song. Um, Ophelia, I think, has to be on the short list of their best songs. It is, again, uh, thinking back a little to, to King Harvest, that that mix, that absolute perfect mix of the instrumentation. At Ophelia, you hear Danko's really funky bass groove. Uh, Robertson gets a, a pretty lengthy guitar solo to kind of show off. Hudson is amazing on Ophelia. Hey, guys. And in some of their other work too, um, the song—it's you know—it's a—it's a—it's a its a, its a quick moving song, but but the, it never feels like the band is rushing through any of that material. just letting it all unfold. Some great Dixieland flavor horns at Ophelia too. It's it's a loose kind of jam, the kind that you would have found on one of the first two albums. Um, I've got to
3: say, got to say something about Danko's bass playing. That's my instrument, and it's usually not that hard. To figure out what somebody's playing from the classic period of rock uh the you know i i as a bass player never had any trouble with that i couldn't for the life of me play like rob R- rick danko i just couldn't i don't know how he did that i don't know where those bass lines came from the sound itself he completely befuddles me in the happiest possible way
1: as someone who has also played bass too I I love Danko's style for that precise reason it feels like it's a perfect reflection of his sort of like jittery, frail, vulnerable personality it just jumps to places that like you don't expect them to jump. It's
3: a, rubbery. Is that the word that has always come to mind? There's a yeah. rubberiness to the sound.
1: I, I always think of it as like a fly. Like you ever try to like hit a fly, and the fly just jumps. I'm like yeah. whoa, <laughs> you can't catch it. It's just always going somewhere that you don't quite expect it to, but it makes sense. And yeah. so that that was Danko to me, and it was just really again, as you say, just very underrated. And and the, and
0: the lyrics on Northern Light Southern Cross are are less inward. Looking Less about the paranoia and the anxiety and the unhappiness that the band was feeling and and are more outward-looking. And, of course, have to mention It Makes No Difference, which is nearly a perfect kind of country soul ballad. The inability to to, to get over a relationship, to to lose the love of your life. Danko's lead is perfect on it. A gorgeous melody. And, again, those lyrics are outward-looking in that you can place yourself in a a similar situation. I think for a number of reasons, this is the second album that I would recommend to people.
3: It's not a bad place to start. I mean, uh, it's like, you know, in all competitions, Mozart wins. Well, in all all competitions about the band, the Brown album wins. But after that, discussion is possible.
1: And, you know, I... Yes, Terry. Ter- in all competitions, Bach wins. Sorry. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, as I, what I was going to say was, you know, maybe at this point, Robertson had had, psychically speaking, cut loose from the sure. group. He understood yeah. that it wasn't going to happen again. He was going to have to carry the weight, um, uh, and he was willing to do that for because there they were, and they had contracts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But. You know, uh, if it's Robbie Robertson and the band at this point, then what we get out of that is a song like Acadian Driftwood, which seems to me just just like a, a King Harvest or, or, or the night they drove old Dixie down to be one of those those gazes into the past where we we put on the mask of history and 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 take ourselves to another time and place. It, it's a, it just astonishes me. Just me.
1: I'm, I'm convinced that the only reason that uh, Katie and Driftwood isn't praised as much as the night that drove old Dixie down is that as Americans, well, we know the Civil War. We know what it feels like. You know, the North, the South, there's lots of us. You know, families have met and intermarried. We've all traveled across this country. We get it. Um, but. You know, unless you're a Canadian, particularly like a Nova Scotian, uh, you, know, <laughs>
2: right. being,
1: you know, being booted out of your home country in, in Acadia and sent down to Louisiana, you don't, you don't have the same identification with Acadian driftwood.
3: Yes, uh, and yet it, it speaks to something that I think is a very deep and profound part of the American experience, which is the sense of exile.
1: Exile and dislocation, most, yes. Most
3: of us start in one place and end up in another.
1: But most of and us aren't forced we, to do it the same way they were. Of and course, very,
3: very happening. rarely. But I think we—it's—it's right. it's something that that I, you know, having deep roots in where I came from, but having not lived there for decades, I just can't help but feel that. I mean, I'm—I'm I'm a self-exile, thank God. But, but I know on some level how this feels, and that's yeah. why that song speaks to me. They wrote in a letter, life is a whole lot.
2: Stakes, children, and come on down Acadian Rift 1, Gypsy tail.
1: I'm the only one. I'm there too. Yeah. I mean, okay. So, the, you, you know, I think Terry spoke very eloquently about Robbie Robertson's sense of like, well, you know, uh, this is coming to an end. We got to wrap this up. And uh, and I think the way you wrap you know, the show up here is, you know, we have this this last album. It's a contractual obligation. Uh, Those are
0: always the best albums, by the way. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. Has has there ever been a truly great album? That's actually a fun thing to research. I I think there probably should be at least one really great album that was a purely contractual obligation. In, In the band's case, it was Islands. It was released in 77, and it was done purely so that they could... Release the last waltz, which we'll get to as we end the show here. But does anybody have any thought on this? Essentially, odds and sods compilation of tracks recorded between 1972 and 1977. This is not an album, in my opinion, with any real impetus behind it. It's a bunch of collection, of, it's a collection of songs. I don't hate it. I don't hate it at all I I like right as rain I like let the night fall and here's the thing I'm most embarrassed to admit uh Streetwalker I like, I like street walker. yes Str- yeah Streetwalker is a horribly offensive song uh, literally about a prostitute yeah. and a tribute to it like oh yeah street walker walking them streets at night oh dear no um but the, the the horn section on that song is wonderful I love it and uh, I'm embarrassed to admit that I love it
2: but it's no one That's a
1: good song. The only song on this album that I truly dislike is is the title track. Is Islands? Um, you know, the band, quintessential kind of midwestern, you know, Canadian even or southern band. Islands. What what, is what are they writing about? Like you know, like. The- you know the Caribbean or something like that. It just sounds like music, <laughs> literally elevator music. So you know, look, all the song on this yeah. album I dislike, but it, it's not a very distinguished record. I mean, I think every every time they
3: made a record, there was something that, that was worth hearing in it. But I can't lie to you. This is an album I never returned to. Right, life's life's too short, especially <laughs> right. for a group that did the work that they did prior to that time.
1: Look, why listen to any song on this album when you could listen to Unfaithful Servant? You know, for, the, for the hundredth time. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. But that, uh, Scott, do you have any thoughts no, before I we move
0: on? No, I will use my 20 seconds to point out, as I was thinking, uh, a contractual obligation that went well. Uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, their greatest hits album, contractual obligation that uh, launched perhaps last, one of their best. Last Dance right. with
1: Mary Jane. Yes.
0: Only on the album because of a contractual obligation ended up being one of their. Best known song, certainly in the
1: top five. So that worked out okay.
3: So did the so did Buffalo Springfield's last album. It has good
1: things on it. Yeah, last time around, not a yes. bad album. I agree, especially on the way home. Um, but but boy, God, I, one day we'll do a Buffalo Springfield Neil Young <laughs> episode. Boy, I will just go to town on that. Yeah, but fun. that takes us, of course, to, uh, and this is the this is the point where. You know, the criticisms that people make about Robbie Robertson being too self regarding, being too sort of uh, self aware of the, his own you know, rock legend and image kind of come to the fore. And that's with the last waltz. What was the last waltz? Well, the band decided at the time they had announced that they said, well, we're, we're finished with touring. We're never going to play another live show. But in retrospect, it was obvious that it was really the end of the band as a whole. And so what did they do? They got Martin Scorsese to film an extravaganza, a three-night extravaganza of them playing at the at San Francisco. I think it was at the Winterland or something like that. With a cast of thousands, I mean, literally everybody who was anybody showed up. They got Emmylou Harris. Mm-hmm. They got Bob Dylan Uh, the staples singers van morrison joni mitchell neil young eric clapton ronnie hawkins showed up to do who do you love with them again everybody came to sort of ring the curtain down on the history of the band's career in this massive concert extravaganza that was filmed and released and there are some people who think this is one of the most moving musical documents of all time, and then there are some people who think that this is the height of cocaine indulgence. And I would like to know where the two of you fall along that spectrum.
3: It just doesn't mean anything to me at all, you know. Wow, uh, it, it, ne- it never has. There are nice moments on it, but it's not. Uh, it, it's again, is something that I just don't return to. Mm-hmm. It's if if I want. To remember what the band was like as a live performing unit, when it was at its absolute peak, um, we were actually talking about this just before we rolled tape. Um, you go to YouTube and search for the for search search for hmm. Ed Sullivan and Up on Cripple Creek, right. and you will find. Uh, a performance of that song when it was on the charts. Uh, It is not lip synced. It is a live performance. You can tell that because you can't hear the first clavinet solo. They haven't figured out uh, how to hit the levels. (laughs) And and it's this, this performing unit of genius at their peak, really enjoying themselves, enjoying the audience, enjoying the song, uh, the kind of thing that you, you would want to step in the time machine and go back and, and, and experience the, the last waltz is a very interesting document about the history of rock And obviously if you care about this group, you want to know about it, but it's it's just not something that I go back to I I don't
0: I, I'm relatively close to Terry on this and and, and full disclosure <laughs> is that I am really generally not much for live albums overall it's mm-hmm. got to be something really special to kind of get... The dirty, little,
3: the dirty little secret of rock and roll is that most of the bands were not as effective as live performing units sure. as they were in the studio.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, unless it's live at it Leeds, as you right. said. Unless it's live it at Leeds. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or get so, your yeahs out. So this, right.
0: you know, as a, I think as a film, it's actually quite interesting to, to oh, watch yeah. Yeah. it unfold. As an album, I don't return to it, and it doesn't do a ton for me. The one thing that I'll point out and it gets me every time is uh, the shape I'm in and that performance of the shape I'm in where uh, Manuel turns those lyrics um, or turns the vocal performance into one of the most bitter uh, deliveries of a song that you'll hear the, you know the band is coming to an end as a touring function although you know a, a, as, a, as a band overall I think was was fairly well known um you know he, he's a, his addictions his inability to write all of it seems to come to the surface on this one performance of the shape I'm in. So, if there's something that you, I would recommend that people go here just to just to kind of experience what was happening inside the band, how mm. it was being released during this live performance, it's it's the shape I'm in. But as a, it's as a it's live. something
3: to be seen once. It's it's like you yes. want to listen to Charlie Parker yes. playing Lover Man once,
2: exactly, and <laughs> never
3: any, again.
1: Yeah, does anyone want to re- want to reflect upon the weirdness and and I. I don't know what the dynamic that must have been going on internally with the band, but of Robbie Robertson giving that lyric, which was explicitly written about Manuel, to Manuel to sing, which he must have known. I mean, he must have known that I'm I'm singing about myself here. I mean, how does that not engender further bitterness? (laughs) I don't understand why he did that.
0: Well, out out of what? Out of nine lives, I spent seven. I mean, those are direct. And I, I guess either you look at it as as Robertson trying to reach him to shake him by handing him these lyrics to sing, that's uh, what or, or yeah, to that's, shame that's him. That's I mean, one or two, right? To, uh,
1: yeah. I mean, for me, um, you know, the last waltz means one thing to me. It doesn't mean any of the guest appearances. Although, actually, you know, I, I not only have the film, I have the original <laughs> album. I have the extended boxed set album. This oh, is an the, addict! Yeah, yeah, I am. I am. I'm. I'm. I'm yeah, I'm, I'm. Many members of the band. I'm an addict. Thankfully, only the music. Um, I'm. I'm. I'm really intrigued by hearing Van Morrison sing "Tura Lura Lura." That's an Irish lullaby. All right. But the thing that this uh, record will always mean to me is that live performance. Of the Night They Drove All Dixie Down. Uh, they do the same horn introduction that they did on Rock of Ages. It's an album, a live album we didn't discuss here. Uh, the thing I've always, I think the objection I've always had to the band's horns uh, when they introduce them on their records is that, you know, outside of the early albums where they were all played by John Simon and the members of the band... When they brought in the pros and the pro producers, it felt a little stiffer. It didn't feel as organic. Um, Yeah, it felt slick. Exactly. And the the tempo was slowed down. And if you listen to the horn version of The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down on Rock of Ages, it's slow. It doesn't work as well as it should. But the version on... The Last Waltz, which you can see by, go Google it on YouTube. It is an amazing performance. You see Levon, he's just swinging the hell out of his trap set. He is singing his heart out. It's like he knows. I mean, he clearly knows. This is the last time I'm ever going to do this. I am ever going to play this song with this band. This band, which is the band. There's only ever been one. The band. Of
3: of which his sound is the defining sonic element. If he hadn't joined the group, they wouldn't have become the band.
1: His drums, his voice, his spirit. As he sings his ever loving heart out and it is one of the most moving emotional moments in live rock music that I have ever heard which is remarkable because as I said the rest of this uh, entire concert performance or documentary whatever you want to call it does not appeal to me but I just tell you folks please go hear the last waltz version of the night they drove all Dixie down I'm with you
3: on that I'm with you on that
0: Have we reached that portion of the show, gentlemen? I think so. Where we get to our our two albums that we feel you should own, our five tracks from the band that you certainly should hear, Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, Terry Teachout, at Terry Teachout on Twitter. And we always turn this over to our guest first to run down both the albums and the songs that you recommend to our fine listeners, Terry.
3: Well, I'll start with the albums, and I will be as obvious as it's possible to be. Uh, the the <laughs> band, the Brown album, the greatest rock and roll album ever made, uh, must be in every collection. It is an American masterpiece by four Canadians. Uh, and I, as a personal favorite, my second album, I, obviously the second album should be Big Pink, but as a personal favorite, I would choose Stage Fright, because those the best things on it, really speak to me in an extremely personal way as for the five singles it's impossible it's just impossible what are you going to choose from those first two albums i will say chest fever for all the reasons that we talked about from big pink uh, because it's funny and it's exciting and and it's a little bit crazy and it rocks and rocks and rocks uh this from the brown album obviously king harvest is surely come uh, which is The epitome of what the band was trying to do Uh, from stage fright, Daniel and the sacred harp, Um, the cover of mystery train, uh, which again, we talked about in some detail and Acadian driftwood, which is almost as much of an epitome of what Robertson was trying to do as a songwriter uh, as anything he ever did. If you hear those five songs and you do not, they don't resonate with you. You are never going to like the band. (laughs) But if you do, you will you will suddenly realize you have been missing out on something very important in your life, and you really cannot live without the Brown Album. So that's me.
0: Uh, my two albums, yes, the Brown Album, which we've talked at length about, and I I spoiled it earlier. I again, after some thought, I, I think Northern Lights Southern Cross is is an outstanding late career album, as Terry said. Some of the magic is recaptured, and there really are. Moments on this record and, and songs on this record that remind you of just how good they were on on, on the second album and, and parts of, of Big Pink. So Northern Lights, Southern Cross, uh, my second album. Songs uh, from, from Big Pink, uh, Lonesome Susie, Richard Manuel's vocals might be his finest vocal performance or at least to the top three. Uh, and a wonderful piece of songwriting too. just listen to Manuel sing Lonesome Susie from the first album. From the band, um, the second album. Uh, I I think it's hard to tell the story of this band without "Up on Cripple Creek," and I don't know if anyone else is going to include it. So I will, right here, and uh, and I will.
2: She can not be bleak Upon Cripple Creek that she sends me if I spring of deep she lends me I don't have to speed and she defends me a docker stream if I ever need see one
0: I will echo uh I will echo Terry's uh, choice of King Harvest and I'm not certain or I'm not uncertain that isn't the finest the finest song that they ever put together uh, the mm. mix of that song is just brilliant. Listen to all those pieces and those individual <laughs> band members and how good they all are at bringing something to the table to make King Harvest work. It's, it's just a fantastic song. Uh, Stage Fright, title track from uh, that next album, Stage Fright, is just an infectious song that, and, and, and a wonderful uh, performance vocally from Danko uh, on that song. And Ophelia from, uh, from Northern Lights, Southern Cross, again from uh, a late career perspective. I then Othelia is, is tops. What a wonderful uh, piece where again, you at least hear the band play in the way they did previously, uh, before it all fell apart. Uh, those are my
1: five Jeff to you. Well, I'm going to have to be that really conventional guy. Good. <clears throat> who tells Someone you that be. the two albums that you have to own are music from big pink, and the band—that's number one and number two. And, and I know you're
3: right. I know you're
1: right. <laughs> yeah, in, in your heart you know I'm right. Yeah, that's you know, right. Yeah. <laughs> my opinions are always right, of course, Terry. But yes. uh, yeah, but, but but let's stipulate here that the band had an incredibly fascinating prehistory, which is one of the reasons why you know there are lots of box sets out there that are you know you know sort of. Pro forma, perfunctory, they don't really offer or add much to what you may have already known about a group. A musical history came out right when I just had attended law school. I remember buying it at Borders Books, the last Borders Books, perhaps, that ever existed. It was great because the first disc was given over to the band's prehistory with, you know, Ronnie Hawkins and Levon and the Hawks and all these weird. Bob Dylan live performances and demos and stuff like that that never showed up uh, you know, on their actual albums per se there is a prehistory to this group that is just as fascinating as the actual history to the group but yes, music from Big Pink and the band are the ones to go with if you have to choose to my five songs um, Tears of Rage is my first one from music from Big Pink Ah, uh, first song on their first album. Uh, this is a song uh, co-written with Bob Dylan. Dylan wrote the lyrics. Um, uh, just one of the many reasons I adore Dylan. I will never, ever be able to entirely get over my admiration for the fact that a man, a young man. Could have written a song to several young men could have written a song about the pain of having their child, their daughter, reject them. I, I am uh, in that mode where, uh, you know, the first young Blair is going to emerge uh in july and that that that's breaking news by the way i don't know if i've ever announced that before but yes congratulations Congratulations. Well, thank you so much yes yes in late july there will be uh, another generation hopefully of band lovers uh that will come out of the womb and I, i i listen to tears of rage and every day it increases its incredible power and it's not just Dylan's lyrics. It's the amazing vocal that Richard Manuel gives it. At basically, the best single thing he's ever sung in his life. Uh, the second song I choose is We Can Talk. I, I, I spent a lot of time talking about this on the podcast. It's positive. It's upbeat. It's so out of step with the times. It's a song not about rejecting and and hating and, and retreating from your family, from, from everything that, you had been raised on but trying to find common ground it's essentially when i think about like well what do i do on twitter why do i exist why do i bother with any of this the reason i do could be encapsulated and we can talk about it it's that same old it's that same old riddle it just starts in the middle uh, the third song i'll choose is from the brown album when you Awake." uh if only for that Fantastic couplet, you know. Wash my hands in my water. I got a date with the captain's daughter. You know, it turns from one thing into another thing. It turns from the story of a child to the story of a a young adult. And again, I just I'm amazed that Robbie Robertson knew how to do that. You know, knew how to like switch the the camera, switch the perspective into something different, and, and turn it into a story of like a young child becoming a man. And uh, again, who who had this idea who, to do this in a rock song in 1969? My fifth song or my fourth song would be the rumor. Um, I have talked again about it at great length. I love the rumor. I think it's the best song on Stage Fright. I think it's their last truly um, transporting song that that captures what the band was all about. And my final song. I'm going to go back is uh, a song called unfaithful servant.
3: Oh oh.
1: Yeah, from the from the brown album. I wanted to leave this until last. Uh there's a, there's a song about it's a song about uh, somebody who you asked to help you, you paid to help you, you trusted who betrayed you. You love them and they let you down and there's no way to convey the power of this music outside of the music itself. So I hope that we we bring the music in here. But when I think about Unfaithful Servant, I'll always think about that final moment when uh, w- when Richard Manuel sings, goodbye to that country home. Mm. So long to a lady I've known. Farewell to my other side. I best just take it in stride. Unfaithful Servant, you're going to learn to find your place. I can see it in your smile and in your face. And these memories linger on. But the good old days, they're all gone. And that is the mystery, the tragedy, the joy, the greatness of the band summarized in one song.
3: Yes. If I may end with a closing observation, nostalgic is not quite the word, but it occurred to me as we've been talking that I have been listening to the band for getting on to 50 years now, the whole of a life cycle. That's staying power. That is here to stay.
1: It certainly is. Uh, It's going to be here to stay long, long after you, I, or anyone else listening to this is going to be gone. I'm pretty certain of that.
0: Yeah. And there it is. Our political beats look at the career and music of the band. We uh, thank our guest, Terry Teachout. You can find him on Twitter at Terry Teachout, drama critic for The Wall Street Journal, author of the plays, Satchmo with the Waldorf and Billy and Me. And the biographies, Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong, and The Skeptic, A Life of H.L. Mencken. Terry, thank you so much for joining us and providing your insight and passion for the band.
3: Yeah, a great, a great, great pleasure.
0: And uh, my partner, Jeff Blair, at Esoteric CD is where to find him on Twitter. And, uh, and I'm sure the conversation will continue there.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to do it all again next week when we get all twitchy and new wave. <laughs>
0: A little bit little bit different next week. Uh, remember, you can subscribe to our feed, uh, new episodes, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in most Mondays, or nationalreview.com. Click over there, then, to podcast, where you can find uh, new and old episodes. Listen, enjoy, share, leave reviews, please. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.